can you tell your dad that I don't blame him for being so angry? And then can you do me another favor? Can you give these to your mother? She left those in my room last night. I would do it myself. But your dad is here and we've already covered his mood. I don't want to kick the nest. Do you know what I mean? Oh, buddy, good luck with that divorce. They get so nasty. What are you talking about? Ho, 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 it's episode 218 of GBW Podcast. My name is Chris, and with me is always is Josh. How are you? I'm good. Is this going to drop before Christmas? This will drop on the 22nd of December. Oh, a Christmas present for our it's listeners. It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> <laughs> I should have watched it. Ho, 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 it's episode 218 of GBW Podcast. My name is Chris, and with me is always is Josh. How are you? I'm good. Is this going to drop before Christmas? This will drop on the 22nd of December. Oh, a Christmas present for our it's listeners. It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> <laughs> I should have watched another Christmas movie, but I just didn't have the stomach well, for them. <laughs> I did, so oh, I got... No. I got your bases covered. Okay. I'm not going to say... I really don't like Christmas movies. I, You know, I learned... Someone, huh? someone's doing like the Guardian or something. It's doing like a Christmas movie showdown to like determine what the best Christmas movie is. And I'm like, I don't like that movie. I don't like that movie. I don't like that movie. So I don't think there's many Christmas movies I enjoy. The best Christmas movie is is It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, it's, I I still don't love that either. It's okay. Oh, it's between that and a Christmas story for me, but that's just me. So, anyhow. We're not going to start with the Christmas movie, but we are going to start with a movie that no, not many people have heard of. And that's a movie from 2008 called Hank and Mike. And this is a Canadian made comedy. And it's one of these bizarro type comedies because the premise of this is that our two main characters, Hank, played by Thomas Michael and Mike, played by Paolo Mancini, are Easter bunnies. So... They're Easter bunnies. It's really just dudes in pink bunny suits. But we're supposed to believe they're Easter bunnies. So it opens with them doing their yearly duties. Sloppily doing their yearly duties of like, you know, delivering kick chocolate to kids and hiding Easter eggs everywhere. And they just suck at it. You know, they'll break into people's. They're basically break into people's houses, drink all their food smoke cigarettes and stuff they just suck at easter bunnies basically. so hold on are they actually supposed to be easter bunnies they're or actually they like... supposed to be easter bunnies okay so that's why i said bizarre premise mm-hmm. so you know they're Wait, there's really... more than one easter bunny there's tons of easter bunnies it's a whole corporation called the easter corporation but i thought there was only one easter bunny well sorry to sorry to ruin your childhood memories josh your childhood dreams have been staved upon the rocks, much wow. like much like a ship on the shoreline of Newfoundland. Wow. I don't even know where that reference came from. But but anyway, so Hank and Mike are just two of the plethora of Easter bunnies that once a year deliver eggs and chocolate. But they kind of suck at it. They don't really care. Like Hank takes it seriously, but Mike's just like, whatever. I'm just going to smoke cigarettes and 
be a jerk about it kind of thing. And there's this just like, you know, they're doing their thing. They've had a, what they think is a successful evening of delivering candy. And then we cut to the Easter Corporation. And, you know, the Easter Corporation is the head of that is a little guy called Joe Montaigne. Yes, Joe okay. Montaigne is in this. And he's also brought in as a business expert, Chris Klein, into the boardroom from American Pie. Oh, my gosh, Chris and, Klein. Yeah, he's actually pretty good in this. And I don't really like him that much. So there's something there. So he kind of brings him into the Easter Corporation in the boardroom and automatically in my head i'm like what are these two guys doing in this movie it just seems like such an odd decision like chris klein i could maybe see but what's joe montaigne doing here i just yeah he went really down Uh, i guess so i guess so so we've got chris klein as this business expert and he shows them this this ad campaign he was he was part of which is this really dark joke that's actually quite funny where it's a showing a commercial on TV and it's called sponsored suicide. So like basically you pledge money for someone to jump off a building. And it was, it's oh. a real, it's a really dark joke, but I actually found it quite funny. Um, and you know, and, and they're just like, how are we going to make Easter better? We're not making enough money with Easter. It's just not working out. And he's like, well, you got to get rid of the, the bad apples kind of thing. Chris Klein says to Joe Montana and who are the bad apples? Mike and Hank are the two bad apples. So they end up, you know, getting fired for failing to deliver to this one little girl. So they're at this one little girl's house and they just don't deliver candy to her. They just, something happens where they just get distracted and fuck up and that makes them lose their job. So from there, it's just these two guys who are Easter bunnies having to take on a bunch of various jobs to try and get by. And that's basically what this whole movie is. It's just Easter bunnies out in the world, learning how to be regular bunnies, I guess would be what it was. So, you know, it's got a lot of crude jokes. Hold on, on. hold on. Is the world yeah. bunnies? No, the world is human beings. Okay, so they're trying to be human. In well, the they're still bunnies. But, but they're, they're trying to they're, be human. They're trying to make it in the human world. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. So there's lots of crude but amusing humor here. We've got a lot of moments of them like fighting and getting evicted and even this mild love angle for Mike because one of his former co-workers, Lena, who's also Easter Bunny, played by Maggie, Maggie Castle, is kind of into him. But the whole thing is just sort of downbeat and dark and yeah, it can't quite sustain its early tone of being like a really, really dark comedy, but it gets by on the fact that the two leads are just doing like a really good job selling you that they're bunnies in these fucking ridiculous fuzzy pink bunny suits, especially Thomas Michael as Hank. Uh, he's just sarcastic and he always has a cigarette hanging from his mouth. And I just thought he was a lot of fun to watch. Um and if you've ever wanted to see Chris Klein sing about how shitty love is in a bar, this is where you're going to see that. He he sings a song about how love is shit, and it's pretty fun. And he steals scenes, which is kind of weird, because, like I said, I don't really like him that much, particularly. So, basically, this is just a kind of a vanity project, because the two stars, Thomas Michael and Paolo Mancini, wrote this, 
based on their 2000 short film and characters they created in this sketch show called YB Normal that aired somewhere in Ontario, I'm assuming, when this, you know, before this movie came out. So it's one of these movies where if you see it pop up, give it a go because it's just so bizarre on its setup that it's worth watching. It's entertaining enough. It has some funny stuff. And it's uh, just one of these low-budget Canadian kind of almost tax shelter comedies that works better than it probably has any right to really and uh you know the the dvd does contain the original short so you can check that out if you're curious about where the origins of this is and unfortunately they've decided to also add in a uh a feature called heckle the movie mm-hmm. which is totally just a fucking mystery science theater knockoff with the two main actors in character making fun of the movie and i don't have uh, yeah. i i just don't have time for that shit i mean i don't like mystery science theater 3000 on a good day so i don't like a second rate version of it on my dvd features either so yeah but otherwise uh mild recommend for hank and mike i'm sure it's on tubi or somewhere i'm sure it's somewhere that you can see it i watched a dvd but uh it's pretty good pretty good so that's that's our kickoff, Hank and Mike. I, I totally watch that. I love original. That sounds really original and weird. So yeah. Well, you get a chance. Don't worry. Oh, you're getting rid of it. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Yeah. You'll get your chance. Bonus, dude. Bonus. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, why don't I start out with a Canadian tax shelter kind of movie too? Okay. It was probably a tax shelter. I, I imagine there was some tax shelter for these. So this is another another one from Vinegar Syndrome Archive. And this is another Jalal Merli and Billy Blanks team up. And this one's called Expect No Mercy from 1995. Uh, definitely tax shelter. Now, yeah. So this is the one, like, you know, because I'm on all the Vinegar Syndrome forums and stuff. This is the one everyone was getting excited about. Really? And I am like, why? (laughs) So just full disclosure here. I have no nostalgia. Zero. For 1990s CGI. Like, I don't watch it. And I'm not like, oh, yeah, that was that was so funny. Like, I am like, this is garbage. That's what I think of when I watch Lawnmower Man. That's what I think of when I watched uh, The Mummy Returns. (laughs) Like, all those movies like i just don't don't appreciate it well dead dead rising even the cg was wonky yeah i mean maybe a little bit i'll appreciate it and stuff like tron or like the last starfighter um maybe but that then that was more like optical effects as as opposed to cg but this cg that that like especially virtual reality stuff it just drives me bonkers i mean jurassic park used a little bit of cg but and no, it was okay. That's, and, that's and it was okay. That was, that was well done, though. That's yeah, how you that do was, it. Yeah. And I remember watching the Frighteners thinking, this is how you do it. And I don't know if it holds up, but in yeah. the theater, thinking, okay, well, that, you know, if someone actually cares and is spending time, that's how you do it. But anyway, Expect No Mercy is not how you do it. No. Um, so this is from 1995. Now, this is directed by a guy named Zale Dallin. Who's Zale Dallin, Josh? Well, Chris, um, <laughs> he's someone I didn't even know who was important in a way. He directed a movie called Terminal City Ricochet, which is a 
weird, obscure Vancouver shot punk rock movie that was produced by the the um, produced the manager of DOA. Um, it starred Joe Keithley, um, Jello Biafra, uh, Peter Brack. Um, I'm sure someone else is in there that I'm not thinking of, but it's like this kind of like punk, legendary punk rock movie that's really, really hard to find. And um, I actually went to the premiere of it back when it came out because um, my aunt was supposed to be the costume designer and she weirdly turned it down. Anyway, that's a whole other story. So he directed that. And he also directed a movie called Skip Tracer that I've always wanted to see, which is a, um, I think it's like a 70s or 80s like Repo Man movie shot in Canada. This is actually supposed to be quite good. So how he ended up here, <laughs> I don't know. But man, oh man. Um, okay, so this is um, a Billy Blanks um, Jalal Merrily vehicle. Merrily is a guy who, uh, Mary, sorry, is a guy who um, produced a whole bunch of action movies yeah. and, and starred in them. And he had three team-ups with Billy Blanks, Mr. Tybo himself, who was kind of like a like a second-rate action star, but, you know, he was decent enough. Um, I reviewed another movie he was in that they did together called TC2000 that Vinegar Syndrome also put out. Okay, so this right off the bat, it opens with this terrible CG as we learn that there's this evil guy named Warbeck, uh, played by Wolf Larson, who um, was in a whole bunch of like, um, like bad action movies, but also some some weird TV shows as well. He was he played Tarzan for a stretch. He was um, uh, he he co-starred with um, Twenty One Jump Street Steve Stephen Williams in a buddy cop series called L.A. Heat, which I. I'm not going to lie. I kind of want to watch. And um, he also was in a couple of Andy Sadara's movies, Hard Ticket to Hawaii and Picasso Trigger. Um, so he's just kind of like this, like, you know, mulleted um, stud dude. And he runs this corporation that's, um, you know, using using uh, virtual reality. He's got a kind of a lead henchman named Damien, played by Anthony DeLongas. Um, another kind of regular in these kind of movies, but he's been in a few better ones. He was in Roadhouse. He was in Sword and the Sorcerer, and he was in the uh, Warrior and the Sorceress with David Carradine. And he was actually the best part of this movie. Okay, so Damien is, or I'm sorry, War Warbeck is running this evil thing. Um, I honestly wasn't quite sure what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, somehow uh, Billy Blanks got hired to like infiltrate this this corporation. Um, Merrily, I don't even really re understand what he was doing there. It was a very messy plot. Oh yeah, no, I do remember. Merrily was like a master of CGI fighting, so we get a lot of scenes of him wearing the helmet, and then the scenes of him like in battle with, you know, some random you know opponent. And, you know, we get a lot of shots of, like, watching people, like, with helmets on, doing karate moves to nothing, and then <laughs> sort of seeing a screen on the side where <laughs> you're seeing what's actually going on. And then sometimes it'll cut to the actual scene, but it's got a fake background, and it just looks terrible. That's what this whole movie is. So, um, not quite sure what people like about this, because... I didn't feel like there was really any standout fight scenes in this because they were all kind of, 
you know, marred by this, by the effects. Um, and I, I don't know. I just kind of, I'm, I'm looking forward to the third team up of these guys. Talons of the Eagle, I think it's called. That's the uh, best one. Yeah. Which is a straight up action movie, I think. But like both these sci-fi ones, TC 2000 was okay, but this one, I, I didn't like it at all. Like this is, you know, I have pretty much all of the VSA titles and this is the, this is what I'm actually like, do I really need to keep all these? Because uh, I'll never watch this again. Um, co-stars include Lori Holden. Um, if you don't know who she is, she was uh, she was in The Mist. She was in The Majestic, so obviously Frank Darabont liked her. And she was also in the first couple of seasons of The Walking Dead. And she was that annoying blonde who uh, kind of fell for the general, if you're, if you're a fan of that show. Um, and she drove me bonkers in that show, too. So, um, sure, kind of cool to see her in an early role if you're uh, a fan of hers, but I am not. Um, we also had um, Billy Blanks's brother, Michael Blanks. So, kind of interesting seeing the Blanks brothers fighting. Not that mm-hmm. I knew who Michael Blanks was before I watched this. I didn't even know he had a brother. <laughs> yeah, I think it might be a half brother. And another uh, kind of regular uh, stunt guy actor in these guys in kind of movies called Rayel Andrews. Oh, and finally, we had Brett Halsey, who I've talked about before. Recently, he, I talked about him being in Fulci's Touch of Death, but he's been around a bit, uh, so weird to see him pop up in, in something like this. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It just This just all felt really generic to me. Um, it felt kind of racist, like, uh, you know, they jump to a car at one point, and of course, guess who knows how to hotwire the car? Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, Billy Blanks does immediately. Of course. Um, there's this hostage, and he he's um, a South Asian dude, but he, he kind of sounds like Fozzie Bear, and I kept thinking Fozzie Bear was like being held hostage. <laughs> waka, but, waka, waka! <laughs> but, yeah, this this one didn't do it for me. No, 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 no. no. Um, that's, uh, that's unfortunate. Um, you know, this VSA line, I, I do appreciate that they're putting out these things that we used... You know, we lived in a pretty great era where you could go to the video store and Stuff like this would line the shelves, and it was always a kind of a crapshoot. But you had the choice; you could decide yep. what you wanted to bring home instead of paying forty bucks for it. And um, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, I just, I just sometimes wish uh, good old vinegar cinder would be a little more selective. But you know, I, I, you know, I read some reviews on this, and this is there are there is some love for this movie. I, I, why? I, I don't see it at all. But, um, you know, I guess we can thank Vinegar Syndrome for putting stuff like this out so it lives on because it certainly wouldn't if if they didn't. Because I don't think this, I don't remember this seeing a DVD release, maybe, but probably a VHS only. And, um, you know, I, it, 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 it does bring me back to those good old days, but there's just so much better that you yep. can rent if you're looking for an action movie from the Sarah. Yep. So um, expect no mercy. I would suggest that's a that's a pass if you. I, yeah, it, I I can tell you a, a movie from the same year that's worth watching that I've talked about on this show, and that's Mask of Death with fucking mm. Lorenzo Lamas, which is also a Canadian tax shelter movie. Yeah, like there's so much good stuff, and and I mean, unless you're really like I, there, I, as I said, there does seem some be some nostalgia for virtual reality. Like I can't even get into like virtual virtual desire with Julie Strain. That's no. saying a lot. Yeah, I know. <laughs> or virtual encounters. The weren't those those surrender cinema ones? I can't. Yeah, remember. yeah, yeah. 
Isn't yeah. Elizabeth isn't Elizabeth Caton in virtual encounters? Uh no, I feel like it's Sarah St. James. Um okay. Yeah, uh, and Vanessa Teller, but that might be Finalian, which also was kind of one of these virtual okay. movies. Anyway, I, I know way too much about virtual softcore, apparently. <laughs> but uh but anyway, yeah, that's expect no mercy. So uh you don't need to watch this unless you're a Billy Blanks Jello Murray uh, completist. You do not need to watch this because I, back in the or mid '90s, watched every Jalal Mary movie, and this was <laughs> this was my least favorite of all of them. Oh, okay. And I've seen almost all of the ones he made in this. Wow, like like Operation Golden Phoenix and <laughs> all of those I saw, and I actually kind of liked the dude. Like he was mm-hmm. the low budget kind of action guy. He produced most of the movies. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, and he was just making these pretty good VHS direct to VHS shot in Toronto, low budget martial arts movies. Mm-hmm. And most of them were pretty good, but this one, no, I did not like this one. And the only saving grace of TC 2000 is Bobby Phillips. Oh yeah. As, yeah. You're right. She's the only saving grace of that. Yeah. Otherwise yeah. that movie she would have been, yeah. would have been miserable, but talents of the Eagle is actually pretty good. Out of the I three. did remember Merhi more in TC 2000 though. Like, I remember, like, in this one, I don't even remember what he was doing. Yeah. Like, he was just kind of there, whereas in that one, he he stood out more like a co-star. I think the best thing Vinegar Syndrome put out from him is the Tiger Claws trilogy. Oh, yeah, yes, there's those as well. I mean, because Tiger Claws 1 is pretty good. Yeah. Like, because that's got, like, Cynthia Rothrock and I think Bolo Ewan. Yeah. So, I mean, it's got good stuff. But, yeah, the, I... I fucking avoided this movie like the plague when vinegar syndrome <laughs> announced it so what's that say <laughs> yeah yeah all right well uh <laughs> jesus what i'm sorry that you watch that <laughs> <laughs> um i gotta start watching like the things i see the way my mind works is i'm like oh i'll watch like the worst looking thing here so I build up to the best one, right? And I'm just like, okay, I really need to go the other way. And because there's never going to be enough time. And uh, why am I wasting my time? You're trying to make I, a... I just know. I'm, I know it's going to be bad. So what? So like what? You're looking at the three Jalal Mary movies and you're like, this is going to be the worst one. I oh no, I'm it. looking at my VSA ones. And then I'm like, oh, maybe I'll watch a martial arts movie. And I grab Talons of the Eagle and I'm like, ah, oh, maybe I should watch that that other one first you know just because and i'm like okay well, what's the other one and, uh, <laughs> dumbass <laughs> <laughs> okay okay well let's move on to a, a movie that i actually really really enjoyed and when i put it on i was not expecting it at all and it's a movie from 1968 called with six you get egg roll <laughs> and uh oh, wow. yeah okay yeah i know this so, so this is a completely harmless comedy completely in the vein of a movie called yours mine and ours from the same year which was starred lucille ball and also kind of like the brady bunch in a lot of ways the tv show the brady bunch so this is you know a family comedy about a family a makeshift family so stars doris day as Abby, who is a single mom to three boys who owns a construction yard and just pours all of her time into her job. 
instead of like, you know, after her husband passed away. So she's just like, does her job, doesn't really care about anything else but looking after her kids. Her sister is like, nope, you got to get back out there. You got to start dating again. So I'm going to, I'm going to call this guy, Jake played by Brian Keith. You remember that Jake guy? And she's like, well, I think we, we had did business with him a couple of years ago or whatever. And so she's like, that's it. I'm calling him and we're going to invite him to your dinner party that you have coming up and he's going to come and I'm going to play matchmaker kind of thing. So there's this guy kind of goofy thing where, you know, she calls up the sister calls up Jake and then hands the phone to Abby. And she's like stuttering over her words and not sure what to say. And it's this awkward conversation. And eventually she finds out that, you know, his wife has also passed away and she, yes, he'll come to the dinner party kind of thing. So they have the dinner party. It's kind of awkward. Jake's just kind of lies because he wants to leave because he's just like, fuck this dinner party. I'm out. I'm just going to take off. And then later after the party, Abby says, I got to go pick up, pick up some groceries. And I'm like, the fucking supermarket's open at like two in the morning because it's about two in the morning. And she goes to the supermarket and she runs into who else but Jake. And she kind of calls him out for why did you leave? And then they end up going to this drive in down the road. Where they, you know, like one of those ones where you drive up in your car and get served at the window and stuff. Mm, yeah. They go, they go to the drive-in so they can like, you know, talk about what happened and everything. And while they're there, they meet the guy who runs it, played by George Carlin of all people, in a super early role. He's just kind of this sarcastic guy who runs the drive-in called, I think his name is Hector in the movie or something like that. And he's just kind of on the fringe being like, you guys are going to make me go broke if all you buy is coffee. And he just makes all these like kind of jokey remarks. And from there, it kind of becomes this kind of romance kind of thing, this secret romance between Jake and Abby. And of course, this being the kind of movie it is, the kids don't approve of this going on. You know, they're like, what about our dad? What about our mom? Because they, you know how kids, they're our parents, even though they're gone. Um, and so Jake's got a teen daughter, Stacy, played by Barbara Hershey. Oh. In her in her film debut, so like she's like eighteen in this, and she's looking really young in this. I'm like, whoa, Barbara Hershey's in this. So yeah, this is good. her film review, and then her three sons. Her older sons, this guy called Flip, played by John Findlater, and you know they don't really approve of what's kind of going on. And Abby and Jake are kind of sneaking around until they get caught because Jake decides to sleep over at her house for the night, and of course one of the kids catches her him in her bed kind of thing and then from there it just becomes a kind of like fractured family getting to like each other kind of deal where it's like you know there's fighting between everybody and they have to decide whose house they want to live in and blah 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 the kids fighting the parents fighting with the kids and then leading up to this kind of goofy chase scene kind of finish where it all ends up at a police station in the end. And there's a bunch of slapstick going on. And you've got like these hippie bikers who are, who join into the fun. And the main hippie bikers played by Jamie Farr from MASH as oh, like God. this hippie dippy biker type. And it's, and one of the truck drivers who's involved in an accident in the finale is played by Vic Tabak from the TV show, Alice. And it's just got all these like name actors inside and just a goofy comedy and just, you know, harmless kind of stuff going down and i actually really liked this quite a lot i'm gonna admit i don't know how 
I just like one of those movies like Freaky Friday or something like that, where if you just turn your brain off and sit back and just go for the ride, by the end of it, it's like, that was actually pretty good. I actually had a lot of fun watching that. And uh, this was the first time I've watched a Doris Day movie because I've always heard she was this charming lady who was in these kind of movies and, you know, she had her TV show and everything. And, you know, she's got a fan base. And this was her final film appearance. Hmm. because she just moved on to the Doris Day show, which she did until about 1974. And then she retired from acting Hmm. and she only died. I think in 2019, she passed away in their nineties. So she was out of acting for almost 40 years. Yeah. uh, When when she, when she passed away. So I had never seen her in anything. And yeah, I can kind of see why people liked her because she's super, super charming in this. Like she's just, always smiling and just a lot of fun to watch and just kind of bubbly. And you don't really see actors like that, like female actors like that anymore in movies. They don't really have characters who are just like fun loving and stuff. Like maybe you had Sandra Bullock in the nineties, but that's about it. And you need characters like that once in a while, just when you're watching violent movies and then you watch something like this, you're like, Oh, I hit the reset button. Now I can go watch violence again. You know, kind of, kind of <laughs> right. Um, I thought Keith was, pretty fun he was from the parent trap i remember seeing him in and he's kind of rugged and always frustrated in this about everything that's going on around him so i kind of liked him uh hershey of course was uh, was pretty good in her first movie she went on to a movie you talked about on the show called boxcar bertha mm-hmm. Martin scorsese and she was in the entity among other things and i always liked barbara hershey so kind of cool to see her in her first movie and I had no idea this was she was in this till I watched the credits. I'm like, Barbara Hershey, the Barbara Hershey, or somebody different? Because <laughs> I didn't know she was acting back in the late '60s. Right. Like I thought she, had, I thought Boxcar Bertha was actually her first movie. So I was wrong. Um, I liked Alice Ghostly as the housekeeper, and she steals every scene she's in. She's one of these character actors who was in such she was in like Greece, she was in The Graduate, she was in To Kill a Mockingbird. Just one of those sign of side characters who if you saw her, you'd recognize her because she's kind of this thinner lady who kind of looks bird-like in her facial appearances. So you'd know her if you saw her. And uh interestingly enough, when I looked into the older son John Finn later, he wasn't in a lot of stuff, but after this he was in two disaster movies. So I give him props for that. He was in Airport and he was in Meteor. So wow. this guy went on to be in the in the ensemble cast of two disaster movies. So good on you. Good on you, John. Good on you. Um, like I said, you know, this was a lot of fun. Directed by Howard Morris, who was mostly a TV actor and mostly directed episodes of TV shows. This is probably his best thing. Because after this, 10 years after this, he directed a little movie called Going Coconuts in mm. 1978, which is notable as being the Donnie and Marie Osmond movie that tanked at the box office and is fucking excruciating to sit through. Because <laughs> I've watched it once when I was a kid and I hated every minute of it. And there's a reason that movie is so very difficult to find because it's just not good. And I feel like the Osmonds have blocked its release because it's not good. But with Six You Get Egg Roll was good. And I totally recommend it if you're into those late 60s, early 70s 
harmless kind of family comedies like i mentioned parent trap freaky friday and things like that you'll totally have fun with this because i definitely did so there you go and in case you're wondering about the title of the movie there's a scene in the movie where the whole new family the two parents and the four kids go to a chinese restaurant and the one kid's excited because with six you get free egg roll so six you get egg roll that's what the title is i was a little confused myself until that line popped up so there you go and how did you watch it dvd okay cool so easily available i got it from the library because i was just browsing the shelves and i saw the title i was like why is that title familiar and then when i pulled it out i was like okay let's give it a whirl why not what's it gonna hurt it's either this or i watch something like blood frenzy of the whores on tubi or something you know let's let's go for something wholesome for once (laughs) (laughs) all right i'm gonna move on to um mistake number two um, of the episode um (laughs) hopefully this rebounds (laughs) (laughs) it'll rebound don't worry um but uh, you know again i felt so vinegar syndrome archive vinegar syndrome titles i do feel compelled to talk about I don't like talking about movies I don't like, but sometimes you kind of have to. And and again, when you're talking about a franchise and um, you're working your way through it, you kind of got to talk about the movies you don't like there too. So um, I watched Maniac Cop 3, Badge of Silence uh, from 1992, directed by Alan Smithy. Oh, I mean, William Lustig. Um, yes, uh, Bill Lustig uh, directed this, um, but when Blue Underground uh, has put out their new edition of it, they uh, he's changed it to Alan Smithy. <laughs> well, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Um, William Lustig and Joel, Joel Swan directed it. I thought it was two of them. Well, what happened um, is that Bill Lustig um, had a script written by Red Larry Cohen. He went and filmed uh, the script and had about 50 minutes of usable footage. And the studio um, wanted a bunch of other stuff. Okay, so the okay. let me go back a little bit. <laughs> so the, the story that Larry Cohen wrote was actually about black, a black cop. Okay. So that's the story they wanted to do. And then the studio made Bill Lustig cast Robert Davi again because Robert Davi was the the lead in Maniac Cop 2. Right. So they had to kind of rewrite the script to fit a white cop. And the studio also wanted it to be a direct sequel. So they also had to rewrite the script to like make it make sense sort of from a sequel point of view. Okay. So this is one of these messy movies where they were trying to change everything as on the fly as they were doing it. And then by the time they were done shooting, they realized they only had about 50 minutes of usable footage. The studio then demanded that uh, Lustig go and film more. And he was like, fuck this and walked, as okay. did Larry Cohen. So, yes, then you were left with producer Joel Swosan. Uh, to pick up the pieces and try and make a finished product. And, um, you know, any of us that are have been listening for a while know my <laughs> love for Joel Swisson. Oh, yeah. oh, and yeah. Chris's love for him. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, he made Pulse 2 and 3, which I absolutely mm-hmm. despised. He made the 4th and 5th Prophecy movies, which I have never seen. He made uh, 
one of the Children of the Corn sequels. Like Genesis, remember. which was shit. Yeah. He wrote some of the Hellraiser sequels. Anyway, this guy, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sure he's trying. I'm sure he, like, loves these movies, but... It's just not. It's just not in the cards. But but is he trying, Josh, or is he just cashing a page? Or is he just cashing in? But why? Yeah, I don't know, man. Because you're making sequels. But you've got to, like, if you're in the genre. Well, I guess it is. I guess there are a lot of sharks out there in the in the horror genre. Yeah. So I I I don't think he has that much of a love for it. I mean, I can't speak for him because I don't know him. Yeah. That's the impression I get. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Fair enough. So he was brought in to, to finish this up. Um, again, inexplicably, <laughs> there does seem to be some love for this movie, but I'm not part of that. Um, because I just okay, first of all, I, I don't really like this series in general. I mean, I've talked about all three now. The first one I kind of liked. So I like the original, yeah. I don't love it, but it I I get it. The second one. Yeah, it was okay. And I really like Robert Davi, mm-hmm. but it was okay. And this one, yeah, I, I was just like not into this at all. Um, and I should be, right? Like these are it's like a basically they're all like zombie like cop movies, like zombie killer cop, um, mm-hmm. uh, played by Robert Zadar. I mean, I should be all over these, but yeah, they, they don't really work for me. Okay, so this one is basically a, a as I said, a direct sequel to Maniac Cop 2, Robert Davy's back. It starts at the funeral of Detective Matt Cordell, the Maniac Cop himself, and he, like, comes back. Then we get introduced to the story of this, like, there's this cop that's, like, buddies with Robert Davy named um, Katie Sullivan, played by Gretchen Baker. We establish quickly that they're, like, friends, and then, you know... The night ends and she goes out to a call. Like there's a convenience store robbery. And I think there was a convenience store robbery in part two or part one. One of them anyway. Convenience store robbery. Um, uh, it's like a pharmacy, pharmacy, um, uh, like a robbery of a pharmacy. Um, and the the bad robber guy in there is um, what's his name? Uh, fucking Freddy Krueger. Um, Robert Englund. No, no, bad Freddy Krueger. Jackie Earl Haley. Jackie Earl Haley. So Jackie Earl Haley is like the this, you know, and I like him in Breaking Away, but he's like I like this, him in Bad News Bears too. Yeah. But he's this okay, so he's this like, you know, fucking, you know, tweaked out drug druggy who's like trying to rob this pharmacy. And this this um uh the Robert Davy's friend comes in and like tries to break it up. She like jumps through the the roof and like it's trying to break up the robbery and um she ends up shooting um Jackie Earl Haley and then ends up getting shot herself. But while this is happening, there's these two like rogue um reporters that are filming it all. And they decide, well, we captured this all on camera, but let's edit it to make it look like a cop, like a a dirty cop had like you know, kind of just in his killed this innocent this innocent guy for no reason. And so they edit it like that. So now this now this woman is like that's you know on life support in the hospital is now being framed as a sturdy cop. So of course Robert Davy is now like, well that's my friend. I'm gonna have to like make you know make this right. So he goes 
and tries to do that. And also, Matt Cordell, the maniac cop, also is, like, pissed off that they're making this cop look bad, so he goes on a bit of a rampage. Um, also along for the ride, we have um, uh, a woman named Dr. Susan Fowler. She's a, a doctor at the hospital who's kind of... Um, uh, Robert Davy asks to watch over his friend. She's also kind of a love interest for him, which wasn't really necessary. She hasn't. She's been in a few things, probably most notably Class of 1999 too, if you're a fan of that series. Um, but yeah, you've got this cast that just kind of they're just kind of spinning their wheels, and uh, you know, a lot of this movie takes place in the hospital where the the maniac cop comes to the hospital. I'm not really no sure why, and does some killings in the hospital, and then it all ends in this fucking church where. Um, um, the maniac cop basically brings a body to the church to have it resurrected. And there's all of a sudden a voodoo practitioner at the church that's there <laughs> doing voodoo. And he's played by Julius Harris from Live and Let Die and, and uh, you know, fucking Black Caesar and whatever. And I'm like, why is Julius Harris here? And then it all made sense. So this was originally supposed to be a you know, a kind of a movie for black actors. And I guess that's one piece of the movie that remained, mm. <laughs> but they didn't, weren't able to rewrite that part. So this part doesn't really make a whole lot of sense as to why it's happening. And um, yeah, and then it just kind of ends. But, um, but you know, I've, I do have a few extra comments about it. Um, so the church is the church from Prince of Darkness, which I thought was kind of cool. And I recognized it right away. <laughs> Um, there's a really slimy kind of sexist, gross doctor guy in the hospital, and he's played by an actor named Doug Savant. And mm. this guy, you know, I think it was right after this, he went on to become the token gay character on Melrose Place. And, you know, sorry, guys, but I was a big fan of Melrose Place. And uh, but that's what that's my reference point for, point for Doug Savant. But I do see him pop up in other movies. And he's always kind of this kind of gross sleaze dude. <laughs> so it's I find it so interesting that he uh, he was playing these kind of characters and then went and played Matt. Uh, but he did. Um, who else shows up in this? Um, Paul Gleason from Breakfast Club is in this briefly. Uh, Grand Bush, um, a black actor that um, has been in lots of stuff. You'll probably know him best uh, for playing um, beside Robert Davi in Die Hard as the, uh, I can't remember what they're they're called in that movie, but it's the two detectives. Um, Ted Raimi shows up. But um, overall, yeah, I mean, even with all these, oh, and fuck, how can I forget? Robert Forster shows up. So that's what got me excited is I saw him on the back and I thought he, I actually going into this thought Robert Forster took over for Robert Davi. Mm. So I was stoked. And then I realized, oh no, Robert Davi's the lead, which is okay. But Forster really has, it's basically a glorified cameo in this. He's he's not one of those stars, but he's in, he's in it. So if you're a Robert Forster completist like I am, it's always good to see him pop up. Um, now, the, the end of this movie does have quite a, 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 a an impressive car chase where the maniac cop is on fire and the, the car is on fire as he's, as he's chasing our heroes down the streets of wherever they are. And um, that was impressive. 
And there was also a full body burn, kind of like in Maniac Cop 2. That was impressive. So there was some some stunts that were kind of cool. But I can totally see why Lustig took his name off this. And uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I Sorry, Maniac Cop fans. But yeah, this series is just across the board just hasn't really done it for me. And uh, I get probably people love the first one because of Bruce Cabell and and. Uh, you know, and Lorraine Landon, she's always good good to watch. But yeah, I don't know. These ones, I, I'm good with my Blu-rays and uh, I don't need 4Ks of these these titles. I find it weird that, that Blue Underground's put out a 4K of something that Lustig doesn't even like. But I guess they're making money, so why not? Yeah. So that's Maniac Cop 3, Badge of Silence. So did you say you watched this uh, Vinegar Syndrome? No, I watched uh, Blue Underground Blu-ray. Oh. Blue Underground. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I also own this Blu-ray from Blue Underground, but that's just because I'm a completist of the series. Do you <laughs> like, like the series? I like the first one quite a bit, and I think the second one's pretty decent. Mm-hmm. But I remember not really caring for the third one. Yeah. But I'm just like, I'm a completist. When it's only three movies, you might as well complete the series. Yeah, and I think if you like... I To be honest, I think if you like the series... You'll probably actually like this one. I just don't really like the series, and I don't know what it what it is. I don't know if it's Robert Zadar. Maybe that's my problem. I don't know. They've just all felt a little, little, little weak to me. Yeah, because I remember they had like pretty good action sequences in them and stuff. Like the first one has that impressive scene with the van and the and the pier and everything. But that's all I remember, right? Yeah, so like that's yeah, like one one stunt doesn't make doesn't a good movie make. <laughs> I know, I know. But I mean, uh, anyhow, I haven't seen them in a while, but yeah. I I do remember I don't really like 3 that much. So Yeah. All right. Well, it's ironic that last episode you you brought up Benji <laughs> and that you uh that you also said that you do not like the fact that movies with animals now have them talking all the time because I had this movie in my canon, but I was holding it back for this episode because I was like, I have talk about too much. We're not going to have, because we had a smaller window between recording that I held this one back. It's a movie from this year and it's called strays. And I was like, I was just like, oh, fuck, Josh is going on about how he hates movies with talking animals. And I fucking watched a movie with talking animals. I guess I'm going to have to hold that one over until until next time. (laughs) (laughs) So so this is yes, it's an animal based. Well, a dog based comedy. It's an R rated comedy that somehow made its way into theaters and somehow managed to get some fairly big names as the voice actors. And. I kind of thought it looked pretty good when I saw the trailer. And I'm also not really into animals talking in my movies, especially when it's like strays and they're talking animals where their mouths have been CG manipulated to go with the words. Um, but I was like, but I was like, okay, whatever. It looks okay. Um, so I I got it from the library. So it's not like I paid any money to watch this. So win for me. You know, that's the thing. If you ever are curious about something but you're not that curious about something that you're willing to pay money for it the library is one of your best friends because you could just put it on hold and then when it comes in you could be like oh yeah that fucking movie and then you could take it home and watch it and be like okay now it goes back you know (laughs) then you you don't have that pressure on you you're not like 
shit, I shouldn't have bought this. Now I have to try and sell it. Or shit, I shouldn't have bought this. Now it has to go in a bag to go to Josh's house. You know, you don't have that <laughs> hanging over. You don't have that hanging over your head like I do. Um, so in this one, Will Ferrell is the main voice actor. Oh here. God Almighty! Yeah, yeah. He he, he voices <laughs> he voices a little spaniel <laughs> dog called called Reggie. Who's completely delusional about the fact that his owner loves him. And his owner is played by Will Forte. And he's just this, like, kind of this asshole who the only reason he has Reggie is because it was his girlfriend's dog and they broke up. And he just mistreats him and calls him names all the time. And he always plays this game with him that Reggie calls fetch and fuck, which is basically like the owner will take Reggie out to the middle of nowhere, throw a stick pop in his car and drive home. And then when Reggie shows up with the stick, he goes, fuck, because he thought he was getting rid of the dog. So, you know, mm. on one of these journeys to get rid of Reggie, he takes him into the big city. And it's it looks like it's probably supposed to be New York or something like that. And he takes him into the big city and dumps him. And Reggie's by himself, you know, in the middle of nowhere, doesn't know what to deal, how to deal with it. And he's befriended by this other tough talking dog called Bug voiced by Jamie Foxx. I know this isn't for you, Josh. I tell you this. And, and, and bug introduces Reggie to his other two pals, this British, British dog kind of thing called Maggie play voiced by Isla Fisher and this neurotic great Dane hunter played by Randall park. And they kind of like teach him, how to survive on the streets and that stuff's kind of amusing because it's like a montage about how you survive on the streets and how you avoid this and da, 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 and teaching him how to hump lawn omerts and stuff like that there's a lot of dick jokes in this movie because it's r-rated and then it becomes a road trip movie kind of like homeward bound because they make reggie realize that his owner was really a dickhead and he goes on a mission to go back to his owner's house and bite his dick off that's the mission of the movie and so the rest of the movie is a road trip movie with these four dogs trying to get back to Reggie's owner's house. Um, I actually didn't hate this. I'm going to admit it. I, I thought it it's filled with vulgar humor. Um, there's a amusing montage where they eat magic mushrooms, which I thought was kind of fun. And I just thought it was OK. Like it was way more fun than it I expected or that it deserved to be. It used real dogs. With the exception of the CG mouths, most of almost all the footage of the dogs was real, which is super fucking rare for a 2023 movie. Like nowadays, everything for animals is CG'd. I mean, think of that movie with Harrison Ford from a few years back, that Call of the Wild. Everything in that was CG for the animals. So to see an actual movie where the only CG manipulation is having their mouths move was quite surprising to be honest. Um, so yeah, I'm not going to talk too much more about this for what it is. It's entertaining enough. It's R rated. So it's got some, you know, kind of crude and lewd humor in it. And I thought it was pretty good. I didn't mind spending 90 minutes with a talking dog movie, you know, and I liked it much better than the movie, the director, Josh Greenbaum made previous to this, which is a movie called Barb and star go to the Vista Del Mar, which I fucking hated but people seem to love to death and I did not like it. I liked strays better than that. So take it for what it is. If you want to watch an R rated movie with talking dogs, talking multiple times about their dicks, 
and talking about humping things and talking about shit, etc., etc. Whatever, get it from the library. There you go. I I knew this wasn't for you, Josh. Like automatically. I, I, I do like Isla Fisher, so maybe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got it from the library. Like I said, it was it was kind of like a no risk situation for me. I'm just like I didn't send money for it. Like expect no mercy. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of I didn't spend forty dollars on a VSA. No, expect no, no, mercy. no, you didn't. So it is what it is. It's 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 a it's a pretty amusing mostly entertaining talking dog r-rated comedy and it's called strays so there you go well i almost watched i almost watched a talking dog movie to be honest with you as well because really I, uh, yeah because jim wynorski's a dog gone christmas has been in my queue <laughs> for quite some time because it's, it's a wynorski movie with a dog and with the swain um but i uh i think isn't fucking is Cynthia Rothrock in that too? I think she is. Oh but, my god! But you know what? I watched about five minutes of it, and I'm like, no, no, can't do it. <laughs> the Swain. <laughs> You're like, sorry, Dominique. We're I can't do it this time. Maybe yeah. later. <laughs> Maybe next Christmas. <laughs> we do need to bring back Dominique one of these days. But so anyway, she was just in Vancouver. I'm so mad. Really? If I had known, I would have been like totally. Like, what was she doing in Vancouver? <laughs> She's like traveling around the world, like going to all these random places with her boyfriend or her husband or whatever. Like just for I fun. Follow her on Instagram. Yeah. So if you would have known, you would have fucking stalked her. If I would have known, I would have been like, "Hey, do you want to be on our show?" You know, <laughs> you, you'd be like, "Yo, it's Swain time." <laughs> <laughs> I love Dominique Swain. Okay. 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 Well, let's let's do escape number uh, mistake number three. Holy shit! Okay. This is it. This is it. This is it. Um, well, we might, I mean, well, my my three movies weren't that inspiring, particularly, but at least I liked all three of them so far. <laughs> no, we'll get this one. We'll get this right, one done, right. and then we're there again. Okay. And again, I have to talk about this because it's good old Mill Creek. Okay. Oh, is this okay. the set? Is this? Oh, yeah. This is the oh, set. Okay. okay. Fuck so man, I, when's this gonna turn a corner? Okay, so it did, it did, but I've already seen the movie. I skipped Mad Dog, aka Mad Dog Killer, with okay. uh, Helmet Burger, which I've okay. already talked about. I tie up the eighty-eight films Blu-ray. Okay, so that would have been a good a good change. Okay, but I had skipped it, and I got, I, I I got I I I I would say this is the worst movie. I will say now that, that's a bold fucking claim movie of the whole set. No, that's a bold I be, claim. I, I don't think it's going to get worse than this. Okay, I, I'd rather watch fucking Doomsday Machine like five more times than watch this. Again. <laughs> like you just gave Doomsday Machine a half on fucking. Yeah, I hated Doomsday Machine. That's how much. That's wow. how much I hated this. Wow. Yeah, it's making me rethink my half for Doomsday Machine because I'm like, if this, if <laughs> if this exists. Doomsday Machine has to be better. Is so it, okay, hang on, hang on. Okay, here's, here's the litmus test. So for us, I might Josh. change it back to I might change change Doomsday Machine to a one. Here's our litmus test between you and I, because I know we both saw this movie and we both fucking despise this movie. Yeah, is it better or worse than inappropriate comedy? It's on par. Oh fuck! <laughs> it's it's on par. Oh no. 
I might even want to watch that before I'd watch this. Because I'm pretty sure Inappropriate Comedy is the half-star movie I've given on Letterboxd that I hated the most out of all of them. Is that the one that um, Ari... Yeah, <laughs> Ari Sheffer, yeah. He, for some reason, he he commented on my Letterboxd review of it. <laughs> and I was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> He's like, you're much nicer than I would have been. And I was like, but I gave you a half-star review, dude. <laughs> He's a funny guy. Okay. No, I, I like his comedy. I do like his stand-up. Yeah. Okay. So this is called... It's a 70s movie, too. Like, Jesus Christ, if it's bad in the 70s, then you know, Josh, if he didn't like a 70s movie, you know this is bad. Okay. So, Okay. <laughs> What's it called? And this is called I Wonder Who's Killing Her Now from 1975. Not a terrible title. Directed by Stephen Hilliard Stern. Oh, I know him. Who um, did a movie called Herod Summer, which I've always wanted to see, but now I'm questioning my life choices. Um, and he's done... Yeah, he's done a whole bunch of stuff, but I've written it so small. Oh, Park, Park is Mine. Park is Mine, he did. Um, I think he did one of the Amityville sequels for made for tv ones okay um anyway he's he's done a lot of tv stuff yeah okay so it opens up with these like credits and this like goofy music playing and these kind of these goofy animated credits with actual animation and some sax music like detective style sax music like a noir (laughs) or something and i'm like okay well maybe this will be okay like kind of a cute opening Fuck me. Like, seriously. Um, like, like, yeah. Like, what are some of the things I wrote down? Like, a cinematic torture chamber. Mm. Um, okay. So the other thing, yeah, I will say this. Um, I also recently watched Caddyshack 2. Now, oh, yeah. Not I, good. You had mentioned that, how bad it was. And yeah. I, I didn't believe you. So I watched it for myself. And holy shit, it is so bad. It's... And the reason it's so bad is because they've cast this guy named Jackie Mason as the lead. Yeah. And he's a style of comedy that I just don't like. And so you're centering a whole movie, especially a sequel uh, to Caddyshack around this guy. You've got no caddies. Um, and like, I, it just, it w- wasn't funny to me at all. Yeah. He's one of those comedians who was considered part of the Borscht belt, as they called it for a slang, where he was like, just one of these like neurotic Jewish yeah. comedians who's just not very funny at all no and certainly couldn't carry a movie and no. certainly couldn't carry caddyshack too no even chevy chase could so that was that well, was i mean and of... dan Aykroyd was so fucking embarrassing oh, in caddyshack oh too. my god like embarrassing oh god. yeah like diane cannon was like the only saving grace but okay so we know caddyshack <laughs> too was terrible it was way funnier than this. Let me put it that way. Wow. So this movie. Okay. So the other thing I'm just going to, I'm the other kind of caveat here. I really don't like Peter Sellers. Sorry. 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 World. I don't like Peter Sellers. Now I haven't seen being there yet. So I think I might like being there. Yeah. But I do not like the Pink Panther movies. I definitely do not like the party. So that style of humor is not for me at all okay and this movie was supposed to star peter sellers so and then he decided not to do it so 
if it's a Peter Sellers movie with Peter Sellers comedy that Peter Sellers himself was like, no thanks, um, it's 100% not for me. <laughs> um, so instead of Peter Sellers, they get this guy named Bob Dishy. Um, I honestly didn't have the fucking effort or time to like research Bob Dishy, or did I care? Anyway, he's like this guy, and the the, the premise is that he's this guy named um, Jordan Oliver, and he gets fired from his job, and he's married to this rich woman. And he decides he's going to, like, um, the, I guess she's got a lot of stocks, so he's going to, like, try and sell her stocks, I think, to, like, um, get some money because he owes all this money to someone. So he is going to go do this, and then his wife divorces him. So he's like, fuck, what am I going to do? How am I going to get my money? So he decides to go get a life insurance policy on his wife. And then he hires a hitman to go take out his wife. But then he finds out that the hitman he hired subcontracted the hit to another hitman. So then it's him like trying to find the second hitman. And then he realizes that that hitman subcontracted it to get another hitman and so on and so on. <laughs> and it's this crazy movie about this guy Whoa. trying to find what hitman is going to kill his wife. And it fucking sucked. <laughs> so, um, okay. You, so... almost, you almost went Jerry Seinfeld there. <laughs> What's the deal with all these hitmen? So Bill Di- Bob Dishy didn't like the main the first hitman played by a guy named bill dana didn't like then we've got this guy named fucking mr pot mr potto potto anyway he's played by an actor named harvey jason a white actor who specialized in playing indian roles like south southwest south asian roles so he was the um, South Asian character in in Steven Spielberg's The Lost World, Jurassic Park 2. And he kind of made a living playing these kind of roles. And he's doing it again here. So it kind of, you know, in today's climate, yes, I know there, this was done in the day, back in the day, and that's fine. But it is pretty kind of hard to watch. Just like when you mentioned Fisher Stevens last episode, like yeah. it is kind of hard to watch this stuff. And knowing this guy made a whole career out of it, it's just off, and just watching watching this guy on, oh, it was just it was excruciating, especially in such an unfunny script already. But then you got this guy fucking running around. Uh, we also have Severn Darden, um, kind of a he's he's been in so much stuff. Um, you know, I just wrote down a few titles. He's been in a couple of the Planet of the Apes sequels. He was in They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Been in tons of stuff, but he's in this, and he you know is another one of the you know i think he's another one of the hitman and you know there's a scene where him and a few others like dress up as nurses because that's funny not um oh nuts also not funny um we also have pat marita playing a token asian character which is also not funny but at least um, he's an asian playing an asian character at, at least uh, yes at least we have that we don't have who was it uh fucking mickey rooney running around thank god um <laughs> But yeah, it's just, um, this is just fucking the worst. This is the worst of the worst. Like, I was just struggling. It was a, such a chore, such a chore to get through this thing. Um, there was a brief glimpse of hope when there was some shots of old Vegas, but it, 
I, you can see old Vegas in so many other movies. You don't need to watch this. So, yeah, I do not like screwball comedies, really. I don't definitely don't like anything that uses the word farce to describe it, mm. which that might be this. Um, and I don't like Peter Seller stuff. So this is 100% not for me. Um, you know, I, I don't think I'm by myself, though. Like, I think actual comedy fans aren't a big fan of this either. But yeah, I, I can't see myself enjoying a movie less than this. Mm. So um, thank you, Mill Creek. Um, <laughs> that's uh, I wonder who's killing her now. And I don't know what the fuck is going on in this section of the set that I'm in, but how you go from Lemon Popsicle 2 to Mad Dog Killer with Helmet Burger to this garbage, I, I don't I don't even know. Are they they must just be random, like complete random. Um, but because most of the sets have some weird, some sort of overarching theme, but yeah. the, I can't see any way you can tie these three movies together. The, the set was just Mill Creek's like, hey, we got all this public domain shit. Don't know yeah. what to do with it. Boing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the worst. It's the worst. The worst. Okay. Well, that's too bad because the title's not bad. Title might be the best thing about it. There's nothing good about this. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> let's move on to a movie that I wanted to like a lot more than I did, which is also my Christmas entry of this episode. And when it came out last year, it was a pretty, it was enough of a hit movie that they uh, greenlit a sequel, and it's a movie called Violent Night from 2022. Um, you know, this should almost be custom made for me because it's basically a Christmas movie inspired by John Wick. That's from the director of Dead Snow movies and Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters, Tommy Workola. So I was like, this should be all right. Like, you know, I, I know what Workola's M.O. is. Like, I know he just does hyperactive action sequences with a lot of bloodshed. And he's not really that good at anything else outside of that. Like, I know that. So knowing to expect that, I was like, okay, you never know. Plus the fact that their star of this is David Harbour, who plays the sheriff on Stranger Things. And I like him. I was like, okay, let's give it a shot. Because David Harbour is playing Santa Claus in this, like the real Santa Claus. And it opens with him in a British pub downing beers on christmas eve and bitching about how greedy kids are nowadays and he's super bitter and he's always drinking beer and he keeps saying this is the last christmas i'm gonna do this shit because nobody appreciates it anymore i actually kind of like all that stuff because david harbour can deliver that because he's like really just like fuck kids fuck christmas forget it i just want to get drunk and hang out at the north pole and do whatever um so, you know, and 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 we get this actually pretty good montage of him, like, delivering presents to houses and not really giving a shit about delivering presents, where he's just, like, half-assing it and hoping people left him alcohol instead of milk and cookies and just kind of not really caring. And it's kind of a fun montage to see. Um, from there, we're introduced to this estranged couple, played by Alex Hassel and Alexis Louder. And their young daughter, Trudy, played by Leah Brady. And they're off to Grandma's house. Well, Grandma just so happens to be a really, really rich lady and a total ball buster. Played by 
Beverly D'Angelo from the vacation movies, among other things. And, you know, they all go to her mansion at Christmas time and they all kiss her ass because they all want to be like the top dog to get the inheritance kind of thing. So, you know, not only is Alex Hassel's character's obnoxious sister there played by Edie Patterson, she also has her movie actor boyfriend along and her influencer son who's like 13 and going on his Instagram and all this shit. And, and you know, and then like, you know, they're just like these goofy characters in this mansion at Christmas time. Well, David Harbour, Santa, and this rich family are soon to collide because into the middle of all this comes a group of terrorists slash criminals who have decided they're going to storm the house because they know there's $300 million in a secret vault under the house and they want to get it. Well, while they break into the house at the same time, Santa has shown up to do his deliveries and he becomes John McClane in Die Hard. As he spends the rest of the movie taking out these bad guys and trying to save the family while little girl Trudy talks to him on on a walkie talkie telling him about how she's so excited to meet Santa and how Christmas is awesome. You know, and that's basically what the story is in Violent Night. And I'm just like, okay, well, it's kind of irreverent and kind of amusing at first. You know, the scene with the sister and her and her boyfriend and the son's like posting an Instagram and she looks at her boyfriend. And it's like, kiss me in front of my son. You know, there's all these like goofy lines like that in it. And I'm just like, OK, whatever. It's fine. Um, and then, you know, the bad guys show up and it's got this irreverent tone and it's working pretty good. And all the bad guys are named after like Christmassy type things. So one's called like Candy Cane and another one's called Peppermint Twist and things like that. And the main bad guy is played by John Leguizamo. Which, oh. You know, I'm hot and cold on him. And in this, he is definitely no Alan Rickman, if we're going back to our Die Hard references. But he's okay as a bad guy. Because he's just, like, there to lead his crew to get this $300 million that's in the secret vault kind of thing. So, basically, the whole movie after that point is David Harbour Santa, you know, killing bad guys on the way to the finale and trying to save everybody. And, you know, at first it's actually pretty good. Like the fight scenes are well done. Uh, Workola actually shoots it in a way that you can see what's going on. Most of the time, he doesn't do that whole hyper hyperactive where the camera's all over the place. Like you can see the fights. There's a little bit of gore going on and it's, it's mostly amusing for the, for the most part, like super hyper violent, and, you know, and, and just, you know, Harbor doing his thing as Santa murdering people, basically. But I got to admit, I got tired of all the stuff of him talking to Trudy on the walkie talkie. I got tired of the fact that there's a subplot with the Trudy girl where she sets up traps like Home Alone. Because right. she says, I watched Home Alone and it was great. So we have to have a whole scene inspired by home alone where you know the bad guys are stepping on nails in the stairs and bowling balls are rolling down onto their heads and everything i'm like what is this fucking doing in this movie right i i didn't need that and i just got really tired of this by the end of it because it's an hour and 52 minutes long whoa so i'm like if this was a 90 minute action movie then i might have been a little bit more forgiving but at almost two hours long 
No, I just, I got, I found it pretty tiresome by the time it was over. I mean, yes, David Harbour is having fun. Yes, the fights are okay. Yes, the violent, the bloodshed is pretty gory at times and fun to watch. But it's too long. It runs out of steam. Legrizamo could have been a better bad guy. As he is, he's okay. But I just didn't like this as much as a lot of people seem to. I just was like, yeah, I've kind of seen this before. It was called fucking Die Hard. It just doesn't have the, uh, you know, the novelty of it being Santa Claus doing everything, you know. Um, that being said, Mitra Suri, who's a, usually a stunt woman, has a really great action scene as one of the girls, one of the bad guys called Candy Cane. She uses some knives to great advantage. Um Vancouver local actor Brendan Fletcher from the Rampage movie shows up as one of the bad guys called Krampus. I fucking loved him in this. He stole scenes in this all the, all through it. There's a scene in it where he's holding the family captive in the living room and he's like, let's open presents. And then they start opening presents. He's just being also because, oh, are you upset about what present you got? And I'm just like, that's the Brendan Fletcher I know and love. So he was here. So it was great to see him. But and and Mercola does know how to stage an action scene, but when it comes down to that, I'm not going to watch this every Christmas. I just didn't like it enough for that. I was just like, by the end of it, I was like, yeah, first half hour to 45 minutes, great. Then it started sputtering out, and I had to sit through another hour of the same stuff that I could get from any other action movie. So Violent Night, yeah, there's a sequel coming, but it just wasn't for me, and that's a bummer. Because I was expecting it to be for me. So, mm. so there you go. I don't know if you have any interest, but I don't know, man. Uh, don't really like Christmas movies. Don't really like Christmas horror, but I guess it's well, not really horror. But No, it's an action movie. Yeah. Is um, there a scene set to an 80s song? Of course there is. <laughs> What's the 80s song? I don't know. It's an 80s Christmas song, though. Okay. Tommy Mercola isn't Johannes Roberts. I think you're getting them confused. No, I remember in Dead Snow too. Oh, was, did they? Okay, yeah. Because Johannes Ro- total eclipse of the heart in that one as well. Because Johannes Roberts is the one who fucking abuses eighty songs in all of his movies. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like no, but uh, like I said, I this has elements in it that I should have liked. Yeah, but I just got tired of it, and that's that's the worst crime is that when it's clipping along and you're having fun and then slowly but surely your goodwill towards it you can feel slipping away every 15 minutes or so getting a little bit less and less and less until you get to a point in the last 15 minutes where you're like can we just get over with this so i can move on with my day please (laughs) that's kind of how it felt by the end so will i watch the sequel probably not i'm going to be honest here i probably won't but it's not a complete wash. It's just not for me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I am going to pick up the pieces here. And uh, <laughs> that's a lot of pieces to pick up. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to go right into Martin Scorsese because it's been a while. And who's going to pick up the pieces better than good old Marty? So um, continuing along uh, through Marty's. Um, narrative filmography the next uh, title up is alice doesn't live here anymore from 1974 
so this is his follow-up to Mean Streets, um, and it's uh, the the next one after this would be Taxi Driver. Just in case you're wondering where we are in the filmography, so kind of an odd choice um, to stick there. Um, you know, as as you know, so far we've everything's been you know th- what we know from Marty. We've seen crime, and you know, with uh, uh, we've seen like. Uh, New York, <laughs> you know, with um with the movies we've seen so far. This one is uh uh centered around a woman, uh, a single mom and her kid, and it's set in Arizona, which I thought was very strange. But it it's it's really good as as we would imagine. Um now I I haven't seen a lot of like this is the whole reason I'm doing this is because I've got major gaps in his filmography, and this is, of course is one I haven't seen before. Um, it opens with this really kind of strange prologue that really was reminiscent of Wizard of Oz, which I was kind of not sure where this was going. It was basically Little Alice um, um, on her farmhouse, and it's kind of it was almost like a fantasy sequence, and I think he actually shot it on a stage. So it had that real kind of old Hollywood feel to it with uh, vibrant colors. It had a real kind of, it had like a kind of a red tint over everything, but a very interesting way to open the movie that it sounds like he was like dying on that sword as far as whether this piece made it into the movie or not. And I think, I think it was a wise choice to keep it in there just because it, it kind of sets up this mythical, um, place that mother and daughter are trying to get to called Monterey. Um, it sets that up um, in in a mythical type of way. But then we get into the actual story and um, it cuts to 27 years later. Alice is played by Al- Ellen Burstyn. Um, this is right after, uh, it's like the next thing after The Exorcist. I think she was on one movie in between, but, uh, um, but she was really kind of hot on The Exorcist at this point. Um, and she basically was able to make whatever movie she wanted. So she got this movie made, and she's actually the one who handpicked Martin Scorsese to direct it against people's kind of thoughts. They were like, he's not, this isn't his kind of movie. And and uh, it sounds like Francis Ford Coppola, she went to him first, and he's like, no, no, you should go to go check out Martin Scorsese. And she watched Main Streets and was like, I like this guy's style. Asked him if he could do a, if he knew a lot about women and could do a movie about women. And he's like, I don't, but I'm willing to learn. And so she gave him the job and it actually was a really, a good, a good movie. Um, So her, the deal is, is she's um, living in kind of this loveless marriage. She's married to Billy Greenbush, who I've talked about many times on the show. um, Most notably from uh, Electric Light and Blue. Um, He's... um, you know they're they're not into each other. He's kind of abusive. He ends up getting killed very quickly, and then she's all of a sudden a single mom and decides she wants to take her son to drive to Monterey, California, where they can start a new life. Of course, as they start driving there, she's um, realizing it's not going to be as easy because she's going to need to find work to like pay to get them out there. Um, so they end up in a couple of different towns, and she's also um, wanting to like bring back her old career as a singer because that's the only thing she feels like she knows how to do. So she's trying to get work as a singer, um, isn't super successful at it, but um, you know, through through this, we get to meet you know various characters that she's encountering 
through her journey. The poor little boy is kind of stuck in a hotel room for a lot of it while she's trying to like find her way. And but I did think it kind of added to it as we're really kind of understanding their relationship and understanding what this kid's also kind of going through. Now, the kid you'll probably like because he's played by Alfred Lutter, who's one of the main stars of the Bad News Bears for mm. one and two. He's okay. the one with the glasses. Right. Um, okay. I've I've never seen those movies, but um, but he's the kid. And, you know, in the first, you know, sort of section of this movie, uh, she does come across uh, Harvey Keitel, uh, who's this very, he's a much younger suitor to her. And uh, things don't go very well. And we do see some kind of classic Scorsese stuff with with Keitel's character. Of course we do. But eventually she does end up getting a job at this diner. And... uh, um meets Chris Christopherson and then um it's not this isn't like kind of the smooth like happy love story that the I've always kind of imagined this movie would be um it's it's a lot grittier than than that but it at the at the heart of this this is a it is a family drama between Burston and her kid and and kind of this new relationship that she's hoping will will uh kind of complete her life um now a um, few other actors that show up in this. Um, Harry Northup, of course, who's ba- basically been in all the movies so far. Um, and Jodie Foster has also got a small role in there. And here is uh, kind of uh, Tommy, the child, the kid's uh, friend that he befriends throughout. And she's kind of into drinking and stuff and corrupting him a little bit. But still, it's pretty uh, pretty innocent overall. Um, Chris Offerson had been in a few movies before this. Um, you know, we a lot of us think of him as a singer, but, um, you know, he was in Cisco Pike. He was in um, uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid with Sam Peckinpah. So he's, um, you know, at this point in his career, was starting to establish himself as a pretty good actor as well. And I thought he was great in this. Now, the thing I didn't realize about this movie, and I don't know if you did, <laughs> But do you? I, I wonder if you know what I'm going to say. But that it was spun off into the sitcom Alice. No idea. I had no idea. I knew whatsoever. I knew. Yeah. So Vic Dave Tabek shows up, who of course is the lead in the one of the leads in the show Alice. Um, which um, yes, this movie became a sitcom, and I don't really understand why or how that happened. No. Um, but it did. And I I quite liked that sitcom when I was. So did I. Yeah, so did I. Um, Kiss so, my grits. Yeah, yeah. So Linda Lavin um, took over the role for Burston in that show. There is no Chris Christopherson character in that show. She's like a single mom in that show. Yeah. But I was, you know, it was funny because I was watching this and I'm like, okay, they're at this diner called Mel and someone's diner. Uh, Tabex's character is named Mel, and then I'm like, "There's a waitress named Flo. <laughs> There's a waitress <laughs> named Vera." I'm like, "What the fuck?" And uh, yeah, I didn't. I it wasn't until after that I was like, "Oh my god, this is actually this spun off into that that TV series." Yeah, and uh, Diane Ladd plays Flo in this, and uh, okay. she actually wasn't on the series, but she went ended up on the series later in later seasons as a completely different character which mm. I thought was kind of odd too, but she's great in this as well. And I always associate Diane Ladd with wild at heart um, with that fucking lipstick, but um, she's like so over the top and wild at heart. But uh, um, I, I think she's always pretty, pretty unique in, in, in 
when, whenever she pops up and stuff. And you do get to see a very young Laura Dern in this as well, in mm. a non-speaking role. If you kind of keep your eyes open, she's uh, eating some ice cream in the background in a few scenes. Um, but yeah, I, I really like this. Um, you know, I, I think this is probably one that a lot of big Scorsese fans probably have never seen. And and it's it's just a great... Uh, it's just a great drama about a, a mom and her her kids. So, uh, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely recommend this. I'm, I'm not. I don't know if I'm going to be like, oh, this is his greatest movie because I don't think that's true. But um, it, it definitely shows that he's he's got range and can kind of do more than what he's been kind of typecast into over the years. I know Martin Scorsese has done so much stuff over the years, but people do think of him as the gangster director which i do think is as unfortunate especially when you see stuff like this but uh yeah uh, i'm glad to fill in this hole finally and get that weird piece of trivia about that uh tv show i loved as a kid um but uh, that's alice doesn't live here anymore yeah i always i i actually haven't seen this movie yeah but i knew the connection um but yeah, it is a weird outlier when you think about it, because this is his period when he was the New York guy, too. Mm-hmm. Mean, mean Streets, then Taxi Driver, right after. And I was watching Taxi Driver actually on, on TV the other day. And that is a total 70s New York movie. Like, yeah. if you're going to point at any movie that shows you how New York was in the 70s, you're going to point at Taxi Driver and nothing else. Yeah. So for him to make this kind of like, family kind of drama in the middle of those two movies and also make the last waltz the same year as taxi driver mm-hmm. it, it's kind of mind-blowing in some ways like yeah. i've always known about this movie but i've never seen it and i think the reason i haven't seen it is because a i knew it was a spin-off and b i was like what's scorsese doing doing a drama mm-hmm. like this so you know how did you how did you watch it dvd DVD, okay. I have an old box that I have of since back in the day where they just threw five Scorsese movies into a box, right? Like the Martin Scorsese collection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have, I have a couple like that. I have like a Paul Newman one, mm-hmm. which is like these are the titles that 20th Century Fox owns that Paul Newman are in. Now they're in a box set, you know, or here's a Robert De Niro collection of movies that we owned, like we have yeah. the rights to. Yeah, okay, okay. I'm kind of glad it exists because I don't. I that's th- kind of what inspired me to do this, right? I'm right. just like, oh well, I've got these Scorsese movies. Two of them were like outsiders, like who's that knocking on my door in this one that yeah. I probably would never watch. And I was like, ah, fuck it, I'll just watch his whole filmography. But I'm looking forward to it. I mean, there's you know the next one after. I'm going to skip Taxi Driver because I've already talked about it on the show. So the next one's New York, New York, which is another one I've never seen. So is that the the Liza Minnelli De Niro, right? Yeah. Okay, I've never seen that one either. But again, I know of it because I'm just like, what's Robert De Niro doing playing a saxophone? That's weird. Yeah. (laughs) So I'll be interested to hear that too, because like, uh, yeah, he's another one where I have a lot of holes in mind too. So, I mean, it's a a cool journey to go on. It's definitely better than my uh, journey I'm going to talk about later, which is coming to an end. But uh, we're not there That was cool too, man. That's like 24. Yeah, something like that. It it was (laughs) I'm not going to, I won't deny it. It was actually much better than I was expecting it to be, Mm -hmm. but that's, but that's later. Now we're going to talk about something that I had told you showed arrived on Tubi and we have a background to it. 
because okay so here's the background so josh and i back in the day we were like hey there's this really like independent <laughs> wrestling thing going on and it's called the eccw the extreme canadian championship wrestling and they're they're doing it at the russian cultural center in vancouver I'm like why don't we go josh i said i've been to one of these before it's kind of fun so Josh and I went, I think we went, what, what two or three times? We went twice. Together? We went twice. Yeah. And we were like, we had a good time. But when we were watching it, we were like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if there was like a horror movie with wrestlers in it? And so we were brainstorming all these ideas. Like, we're like, hey, you could have it. So like they introduce one wrestler and instead of him walking out from the dressing room and going down the aisle to the ring, just his head rolls down the aisle because he's <laughs> decapitated. We're like, this would be a cool idea for a movie. And they had some personalities there. Like they had like um, Nicole Matthews was the badass woman wrestler. And Tony Baroni was like the Italian. Oh, yeah. stud. And then they had this guy called Scotty Mack. And he was kind of like the blonde kind of like, you know, the muscly blonde, good looking guy or whatever, who was the champion. And Josh and I looked at each other and said, that's the guy who's going to be in our slasher movie. <laughs> If we were to do this wrestling slash we well, somebody else had that idea, I guess, because in 2023, a movie came out with Scotty Mack in the lead that is kind of a slasher movie, and it's called Death Rumble, directed <laughs> by Rusty Nixon. I knew this of this existence that this movie was being made, but then one day I saw it showed up on Tubi, and I was like, holy shit, I guess I'm watching this. I was the sixth person to log it on Letterboxd. <laughs> Me. Um, so there's not many wrestling horror slash thriller type movies out there. In fact, the only one I can think of is WrestleManiac from like 2006, mm -hmm. which was which was pretty good because it was a, a a psychotic luchador killing people in a town. That was okay. But this, I was like, here's another one. Let, let's see what this is. So. It's RNW Wrestling Federation. I don't know what the RNW stands for because I didn't really, didn't really say. But they're on tour and they're touring all these little podunk towns in the middle of nowhere. And their champion is Scotty Mack playing Billy the King Logan, and he's like, you know, he's doing his persona that from when we saw him wrestling in live. But he's got like he's got a bunch of jokes on the side. So it's him. And the crew of wrestlers and one of the wrestlers managers, abrasive managers played by Gigi Saul Guerrero, who is the founder of the Luchagor Vancouver Film Collective and directed the movie Bingo Hell and Culture Shock for Blumhouse. So on and so forth. She's here as an abrasive manager. And I'm like, OK, as expected, this is fairly low budget. It's digitally shot looking. Where's this going to go? Well, the wrestlers are on tour. They're in their RV. They're heading to the next town and they're tricked to head it they're tricked through gps to end up in this little kind of hillbilly compound and the people who tricked them there are this guy garrett this tobacco chewing guy garrett played by travis waters and his evil mom played by brenda matthews and they're the ringleaders who have brought the wrestlers to town so they can put on their very own wrestling show called the death rumble and it's going to be these wrestlers they've taken captive fighting against the family's hulking, kind of not all there, mentally challenged brother Elmo, played by Tuan Holiday. And the rest of the movie is that is basically 
them getting ready to fight, but also trying to escape from these crazed hillbillies and getting killed along the way. And that's what Death Rumble is about. And, you know, this is totally, <laughs> this is totally the kind of movie that fucking pops up on Tubi out of nowhere. It's yeah. one of those type of movies. So, I mean, it pops up on Tubi. You're like, oh, that movie. And then you forget about it. That's what Death Rumble is. <laughs> you're just like, you watch it. It washes over you. It's not terrible, but it's not very good. Um, it's It feels exactly like what it is. It's a shot in the middle of nowhere. Lark with amateur pro wrestlers filling the cast. That's barely a step above backyard wrestling videos. That's what Death Rumble is. I When I was watching this, I messaged Josh and said, this feels like it was shot in Mission BC. Now, if you live in BC, you know Mission BC is kind of like a, you know, kind of like a hillbilly, rednecky type town. <laughs> you know, no, no offense to people who live in Mission. <laughs> but once I looked it up, I'm like, yeah, they filmed this kind of in the, you know, the outskirts of the lower mainland here in BC. And you can tell. Um, so it's not great, but what I did like about it is that it doesn't take itself seriously. And the cast is generally okay, considering they're all, you know, wrestlers, but there isn't a lot of wrestling in this. That's mm. my problem. Like in the finale, sure. There is some wrestling going on and there is some metal blasting on the soundtrack during that wrestling and stuff, but there's not enough wrestling. I'm like, don't give me, don't fucking tease me with a movie <laughs> called Death Rumble with these wrestlers who have actually seen wrestle live and not have them wrestle. Like, just don't do this to me. Like, this is unacceptable right now. And also, don't throw in this tag team called Double D, who are who are brothers, played by Coco and Suge Blanco. And don't give them a multiple scenes of them acting like fucking children and yelling things in tandem all the time. So, like, they'll get excited about something. And so, so like, say you and I were, like, going to have a food fight. We would both yell at the same time, food fight! Or, you know, and they do that through the whole fucking movie. Repeatedly. And I'm just like, no. I know you're trying to be funny, but this doesn't work. Like, this is not funny to me. So... Yeah, I, I don't really have a lot more to say about this because this is exactly what it is. It's a movie that's on Tubi that you can press play on, spend 80-something minutes with, and go, well, I've seen it now. Now I can move on to something better. That's what Death Rumble is. It's it's uh, I watched it purely because of the fact that Josh and I had been to ECCW. We knew who Scotty Mack was. We knew who Gigi Saul Guerrero was and we knew it was filmed in, in our neighbor, like in our area. So that's why I pressed play. Do I regret pressing play? No. Do I recommend it? Also? No. So <laughs> that's, that's death rumble. Wow. Yeah. I was on the fence on watching this so that I texted you. I'm like, should I watch this? And you're like, eh. <laughs> yeah, you, could, you could probably be okay. Not watching it. <laughs> but like I said, I mean, with with to be in existence, movies like this fucking pop up all the time on yeah, there, yeah. and you're just like, where did this come from? Yeah, and why am I only the sixth person to log it on Letterbox? Yeah, so, yeah, you know. Well, maybe it, it just came out, right? Maybe, maybe. I mean, I'm sure if I looked now, it might be up to twelve people if we're lucky. <laughs> Who knows? 
Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll I'll look it up and see how many people have actually logged Death Rumble now. Here we go. This will take one second. Let's, <laughs> let's see. I was number six. Let's see how many people have watched it since me. Oh, let's have a look. We're at seven. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I watched this over a week ago. Yeah. So, hey. You know, good on you for making a wrestling kind of horror movie. But, uh, you know, I think as long as you guys had fun doing it, that's all that matters, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Okay. So um, I'm going to talk about a um, kind of movie I like loved and uh, that still holds up. Um, okay. This is what I kind of one of my favorites when I was in my formative years. Um, and it's called Drugstore Cowboy from 1989, uh, directed by Gus Van Sant. Um, this is his second feature. Um, What's well, his first like big feature? The other one was called Malinoche, which uh, I think Criterion's put out. But um, this is kind of the one that got him on the scene. And he followed this up with stuff like My Own Private Hide Idaho, uh, even Cowgirls Get the Blues. And then went and did the Psycho remake, and it feels like he's just been kind of different ever since. I mean, yes, there's been stuff like Elephant, but yeah. um, I just feel Gus Van Sant just never really, we never really got back to this stuff. Yeah, like even Paranoid Park, which should have been like mm. prime Gus Van Sant, wasn't. Yeah. Like it was, this, it, was, yeah. it was well enough made, but it didn't feel like one of his movies. Yeah. Yeah. But Drugstore Cowboy, yeah. So this is set in Portland in 1971. And it's about this, basically about this crew of four that uh, kind of low-rent criminals that just run around breaking into drugs or holding up drugstores and stealing the pharmaceuticals and then get high. Mm -hmm. So they're led by Matt Dillon playing Bob. Um, this is, you know, Matt Dillon, he, it feels like he's been around forever. But he's not that much older than me. And it's just, you know, I've kind of grown up with Matt Dillon. Like when I saw The Outsiders, he was just like six years older than me or eight years older than me. And and uh, he's just been a presence through my whole life. And he was in his like 20s at this time. And uh, it's, it's just kind of cool because he's one of these guys that just feels like he hasn't really aged that much either as mm -hmm. time went on. But so he's he's uh, his he's with his girlfriend, uh, Diane, played by Kelly Lynch. And, uh, you know, she's she was, you know, she was in Roadhouse, second, second Roadhouse reference today. Nice. Um, but she was Good also thing Roadhouse in... is rad. Yeah, it is. And then she, you know, she had a time during the 90s. She was in um, Tree of Hearts or Three of Hearts with Stephen or uh, Billy Baldwin, Virtuosity with Denzel Washington. Um, but never really like I think people know the name, but she just never became a huge, huge star. Um. They, they're joined by James Legros, uh playing Rick, um, who is, you know, he's one of these guys from the 90s that I, like, love. Um, he's always good when he shows up and stuff. He was in Point Break. He was fantastic in a movie called Living in Oblivion, uh, playing an actor. And he was fucking hilarious. Um, and he was also in Phantasm 2, as well as a movie called Floundering. Uh, but he's been in tons and tons of stuff. He's, he's kind of the sidekick, but he's you know, Matt Dillon's clearly the leader and he's clearly the the side guy, but um, but very devoted to Matt Dillon and uh, James LeGrew is really good in this movie. And then his girlfriend's uh, Nadine is played by Heather Graham. And this is a pretty early role from Heather Graham. Um, she'd still been around a little bit, namely Net License to Drive, 
Right. And uh, this feels like definitely Heather Graham being like, okay, I need to change. I, I need to not have that image. <laughs> and I'm going to play a junkie. And uh, it worked. I mean, Heather Graham's probably one of the more notable actors of our generation. She's been in so much stuff. And I think making a decision to go into a bit of a harder edge movie early in her career really helped her with that. Um, we have a kind of a cop that's kind of chasing them throughout the movie, played by James Remar. I totally forgot he was in this. One of my favorite character actors. Um, there's also a, a couple of other actors that we know, Max, Max Perlick, um, who always plays these kind of weaselly junkie types. He's kind of like a like a smaller, less obnoxious Michael Rappaport, but still pretty obnoxious. Mm. Uh, that's what I always think of when I think of this guy. You probably know him from a movie called Rush uh, with Jennifer Jason Lee. And Grace Zabriskie also shows up, um, who was a... Uh, she was in a bunch of David Lynch movies, including Wild at Heart and Twin, Twin Peaks. And William S. Burroughs shows up um, as an older junkie that Matt Dillon kind of connects with later in the film. Um, so this is based on a novel by James Fogel, um, who only, I believe, published the one novel, which I actually really want to read now. And this is like a novel based on this guy's life of, of robbing drugstores. Mm. And uh, he was actually in jail at the time that this movie came out. And then years later, got out of jail and then was thrown back into jail when he was in, in his 70s for robbing fucking drugstores still. And he's now mm -hmm. since passed away. But that's pretty crazy that like this guy like kind of came up doing this, got thrown in jail, got out. A movie was made about him, got thrown in jail again like years, years later. Uh, but uh, I kind of think of him like as more of a junkie um, Eddie Bunker or uh, maybe like a Jim Carroll type character. So um, I'd like to know more about this guy, but there's just not a lot about him. Um, there's some great heist sequences in this. I think they do three or four heists, including one at a hospital. All of them are really well staged, um, really well done. Um I thought it was really interesting that no one is glamorized in this movie and they're not, there's no goal. Like these guys, like Matt Dillon in particular, but all of them, they just want to score. All they care about is drugs, which I thought was really interesting. Like usually in these kind of movies, they're trying to achieve something, but I think this really played it like it is. That's all they wanted. They just wanted, they ran out of drugs they had to go hit another store so they could do more drugs. And that's all it was. And it sounds kind of lame, but it actually is really compelling. And I, I think really probably kind of nails what that lifestyle's like. Um, uh, Lynch and Graham in particular are great. Uh, I liked Matt Dillon a lot. I just think I've seen so much Matt Dillon. It's maybe a little hard at this point to buy him as this, but he's he's still really good in this. And Legro is, is as always excellent um i've always had a superstition about a hat on a bed it's um and i clearly got it from this movie i didn't remember i got it from this movie but i have always been freaked out by a hat on a bed and i actually i'm so crazy about it um that i actually caught my partner putting a hat on a bed and um i'm like that is a bad omen and um a week later the cat died in a, in a, with for no reason 
So, um, yeah, I still believe in the hat on the bed, and it plays big time in this movie, as does um, talking about pets, which is another superstition. So that's the only thing other than drugs that's talked about in this movie is these weird superstitions that Matt Dillon has. But um, really interesting cinematography. There's scenes of, like, you know, Matt Dillon talking, and there'll be, like, needles, like, kind of um, spiraling through the scene, which I thought were really, really cool. I thought it lost a little steam in the final act, but not enough to make me not like the movie. And um, it had to, it had to go somewhere. You couldn't just have an entire movie about drugs, but the majority of it is. So I don't know. I love downbeat drug movies and about downbeat people. So this is right up my alley. Um, I picked up the imprint Blu-ray. Um, it looked great and. Uh, yeah, super happy to watch this again after all these years and have it hold up just as it did back when I first saw it. So if you've never seen Drugstore Cowboy, highly recommend it. I have never seen Drugstore Cowboy. Really? Really. Oh, my God. But I have it on my PVR. Oh, yeah, this is like a super classic, dude. And, you know, when I think of 80s movies, I just, you know, I don't really think of movies like this. But, yeah, there were some some good, tough movies in the 80s. Yeah, I... I... There, I do have some holes in the Vincent categories here too, but um, you know, I love to die for mm -hmm. and things like that. So I, I should check this out. And I mean, I had no idea it was about heists. Yeah. I just thought it was a bunch of junkies hanging out. I didn't know it was about robbing pharmacies. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm like, I'm more in now. Yeah, I know that that's what it's about because I love heist movies. So I'll have to. Have to give it a, a whirl and maybe. remar hassling them throughout well, like, why no and i didn't know he i didn't know he was in it until you said it and i'm like okay yeah sold so I'll, I'll have to check it out next year when i'm trying to clear my pvr down a little bit because uh there's too much shit on there i realized <laughs> yeah <laughs> so okay cool cool um let's go back to comedy and one that's not gonna take me that long to talk about i watched a lot of comedies this time that are just like I want to mention them because I enjoyed them enough. But the problem with comedy is a lot of times there's not much to talk about when it comes to plot, you know, because they're all basic one, two, first, second, third act movies. There's not really anything where you're like, oh, and then this happened and my, like, whoa, my mind was blown. It's just like, yeah. And then there's this joke followed by this joke. You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, so this is one starring Jason Bateman, directed by Jason Bateman. And it's a black comedy to boot. And it's called Bad Words from 2013. Um, I actually did kind of like this one because it's kind of up my alley because it's its main character is an asshole. Its main character, Bateman, is this 40-year-old guy. And his name is Guy. And he's using a loophole in the rules in order to enter into children's spelling bees so that he can decimate his competition who are usually eight to 10 year old children. And he decimates them by humiliating them and also doing mean things to them. And I was all there for this. And I don't know what that says about me, but I was there for that. There's scenes of him. Like he basically, <laughs> I'm going to spoil some of these jokes because they're pretty funny, but basically he's entering these spelling bees and we find out that he's doing it. He has a, a reason for doing it, which we learn later, which I wasn't that satisfied with. 
But we also found out that he didn't graduate grade eight. So he's just been this guy who didn't graduate school, who's now decided this is my mission in life is to win these spelling bees. He's being followed along around by this reporter played by Catherine Hahn, who he's also kind of having sex with on the side. And then he's just getting and is basically covering his expenses in order to get this magazine story. He's just being a total jerk. He just, you know, he he's just totally like decimating these kids. Like there's a scene in this where he steals Catherine Hahn's underwear and shoves it in his pocket. And then he's sitting beside this kid at the spelling bee. And he's like, hey, hands him the panties. It's like, can you give these back to your mom? I got him from her last night. <laughs> you know, like jokes like that. He's just being an asshole to these kids. And I'm just like, oh, well, that's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. Um, and then it all just kind of kind of builds up to this Golden Quill National Spelling Bee, which is the big prestige spelling bee. It's it's lorded over by Allison Janney as the director. And Allison Janney, I love in movies like I, Tanya and Bad Education and things like that. Like she's kind of an underrated comedic actor and I think she's great um and then you know and at the same time he's kind of befriended by this 10 year old competitor called Chaitanya played by Rohan Chand and you know at first he's kind of annoyed by this kid because he's super precocious and he's super motor mouth but then eventually they kind of become a 40 and 10 year old group of friends and they kind of do bad shit together too so there adds another kind of amusing angle to the whole thing um but there's just something inherently watchable about Justin Bateman being a dickhead to children because I just picture him as a nice guy. Well, I mean, after watching Ozark and The Gift, I don't really picture him as much of a nice guy. But in real life, I picture him as a nice guy because of his sitcom beginnings and stuff. And to see him just being an asshole like this, I was there for that. I, I thought it was pretty funny. Um, yeah, the humor has lots of innuendos. It's purposely vulgar. And, you know, there's... There's just a, a great montage of of guy and this little kid getting up to no good with Beastie Boys playing on the soundtrack. And, you know, and it's just this really ridiculous black comedy that I, I quite enjoyed. I thought it was kind of fun. And I, I thought Bateman did a good job making his first movie as a director. And, uh, you know, and I, I thought that there was more laughs in this than I was totally expecting there to be. And again, a lot of it comes from him being a dick to kids. I'm not going to lie. Um, Philip Baker Hall is on hand here, too, as the founder of the competition. He's a character actor who, once you've seen him, you know who he is. And uh, most notably, surprisingly, one of the angry parents who gets mad at Guy is played by Judith Hogue. And Judith Hogue is someone who I mostly know as playing April O'Neil in the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. And I was like, she's still acting? And yeah, apparently she's been in a lot of stuff, but I had no idea. So um, if you like vulgar black comedies and you like see and you want to see Justin Bateman be an asshole to children, you can't do much wrong with bad words. It's available everywhere. It's on Netflix. I think it's probably on Tubi. I watched the Blu-ray, but this was a lot more fun much like strays. It was a lot more fun than I was expecting it to be. So there you go. Nice. Okay. Um, okay. I watched a documentary. Now I'm not a big fan of documentaries. No, not because I don't like learning things. I just feel like they're oftentimes 
you know, they're just, I just find them quite biased quite regularly. Right. So I've been curious with this director for quite some time because I feel like this is more what I want in a documentary. So I watched a movie called High School from 1968, directed by Frederick Wiseman. Now, this guy, um, this is, I've tried one of his other movies and I, I, I didn't make it, but they're all quite long. So, so the way he works is he's kind of, this is a true kind of documentary as I feel like a lot more than one with a narrative where he's just basically goes into some, he, he focuses on institutions or buildings. So he'll go somewhere and he'll just kind of implant himself for a few months or a few weeks or whatever. I don't know what how long he implants himself, but and he'll just shoot. And then yeah. he'll just capture footage and then he'll edit it together into a movie. So there's no there's nothing leading you, there's no narrator leading you into what you're supposed to think, like Michael Moore, like Morgan Spurlock, like so many documentarians. And I you know I, I know they're all doing trying to do their best. I know they're all wanting to show us something and but it's i don't like someone's opinion being forced on me and uh and you know because most of the time i'm probably gonna agree with you anyway especially if i'm watching your fucking documentary like if i'm watching a movie about climate change i'm i don't need to be convinced <laughs> like i'm already there so um but this i just thought was fascinating because it's literally just capturing what high school was like in 1968 in a high school in Philadelphia. And um, it opens with seeds of like um, just the streets of Philadelphia with sitting on the dock of the Bay playing. And then we just start seeing various scenes in a high school. So we get to see this gym teacher being a total dick to some kid who's like trying to get out of gym because he's got a medical condition and the gym teacher basically saying, you know, you're not a man because you're not getting in your gym shorts. And there are scenes of like, there's another scene about uh, a female teacher. Like um, it's, it's almost like a drama teacher, but like the, she's got women, like, like young, young teenage girls, like walking across the stage and she's like critiquing them. And she's saying like, so that, that girl's got, you know, she's, she's kind of fat and, you know, mm. you don't want to be that. <laughs> so that kind of stuff. And, and um, just seeing how things were back then and just how much things have changed, I think it's important. And uh, this just captures that time period. It's shot in black and white. Um, the teachers are like, pretty much fascists like just being like complete assholes like the concept of a hall monitor like i remember students being hall monitors at one of my high schools but they didn't give a shit but in this like the teacher's getting really serious and like asking everyone for their hall pass and then kind of berating them and i just thought the way that they're talking to the students was kind of crazy and that they bring in a gynecologist at an assembly to talk about the female organs and talking to a, a bunch of males. And it's a male gynecologist talking to a bunch of males about basically popping a cherry. And it's just kind of horrifying. And, but you know, at the same time, that's what was going on. And 
And, but yeah, there, it just let me kind of see for myself what the story was and decide for myself what I wanted to think. Now, of course, Wiseman is editing this in a certain way to like, you know, manipulate your emotions to a degree, but he doesn't need to like say it, you know, he doesn't need to tell you what's wrong or tell you. And I thought I found it quite fascinating. So um, I think this, if you're interested in this director, this is definitely a, a good starting point. It's, Yes, it's in black and white, but it's also only 75 minutes long. So um, this is an easy way to kind of see what this guy's all about. And he's made some fascinating shit. Like he made one in the 70s or 80s called The Store. And it's just about a retail store and kind of how that how it works. Uh, there's one about a hospital. There's one about a zoo. Like there's all kinds. Of, and they're just called like hospital, zoo. <laughs> like that's just yeah. it, the subject is what you get. But as I said, like I tried watching one called Ex Libris, which is about the New York Public Library, um, but it's three and a half hours long. And I just, you know, I just kind of was like, oh, I'll get back to this. And then I never did. But I still think I like the idea of it. I like the idea of a documentarian just documenting and just putting it down. And that's your movie. I think that's really cool. I don't hate documentaries. Don't get me wrong. Like I do... I do like them, I and I do watch them. I just feel like oftentimes I'm just being, I, I'm just, I, it's one person's opinion. Like the director's opinion is what I'm kind of having to listen to as the truth, and which isn't always necessarily the truth. So that that's my thing with documentary. Well, we know you don't hate documentaries, Josh. You talked about the Paradise Lost ones the last three episodes, and you loved them. I did, but again, back to my bias thing, I did complain about it in the second yeah. one about yeah. the bias, right? So, I do. I'm I'm pretty picky, but this this was just like just straight up footage, and I I think this is this guy's a fascinating director. I mean, he made a he's he's 93 now, and he moved, made a movie this year about a restaurant. Mm. um uh kind of a i think it's a michelin restaurant and again just implanted himself and is just showing what the deal is behind a a michelin restaurant and i i think it's really kind of neat especially as they age right right? like the high school and i just i mean in my movie brain high school in 1968 is like greece (laughs) (laughs) i don't know so sort of seeing what it was like is or it's like fucking rebel without a cause or teenage confidential or something right like it's an it's an it's a b-movie high school in my head you're just expecting people <laughs> to be fucking dancing in the cafeteria and shit. exactly exactly <laughs> or maybe van doran to be running around and you know that's not how it was and i i, I did think this was a little this was kind of eye-opening and uh it, you know i almost wish he had done one in each decade like that would be an interesting experiment right? kind of like, like michael apted did with the up movies kind of yeah like it'd yeah. be kind of neat to like that's actually a great idea like imagine if he had done this in 1968 then 78 80 like 10 every 10 years went back to the same high school and shot some footage that'd be kind of neat anyway very fascinating if this sounds interesting to you at all um You'll you'll probably be interested and and you'll probably be interested in some of uh, Wiseman's other work, but just some of them are are quite lengthy, um, very hard to find, which is why it's taken me so long. However, um, a number of them are on Canopy. Canopy, okay, cool. Yeah, 
Is this one on Canopy or no? This one is on Canopy. Okay, I'll watch it now. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, that's usually the go-to for these kind of more obscure documentaries. I find Canopy has a lot of them. So, yeah. and, and, and I know of this guy because um, I was listening to a movies that made me episode with Alex Winter. Oh yeah. And he talked about this guy because Alex Winter has moved from being an actor into documentaries himself. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about his favorite documentarians and stuff. And he was uh Wiseman was one of the guys he mentioned. Yeah, it's a certain style. Uh, I know he doesn't like the word Wiseman, but like a cinema verite. Right. Like just that kind of like, you know, watch just watching thing. Like uh, I think it, they call them observational documentaries. Yeah. I find quite quite neat. But yeah, it's it's a tough genre. I don't know. I think it's a I think it's an interesting genre that, that certainly can cause debates. But I also think that when you when you make these type of documentaries you're actually getting a more realistic viewpoint because you'll get to a point where people will forget that they're being filmed Mm -hmm. because you don't have a documentarian approaching them and interviewing them constantly and things like that like if he's just off in the distance filming people are going to forget the cameras there yeah so you're going to capture a lot more stuff like you were talking about of like you know the teachers berating the students and Things like that. Like you're if someone knows they're being filmed, they're gonna be on their best behavior. Yeah. Whereas with the way he's doing it, they're gonna forget the cameras there. And I think that's kind of fascinating in itself that how people behave when they think they're not being watched. Yeah, I mean, I think that the crux of this or the kind of the heart of this one is about masculinity and femininity. Like that's that's really when right. I found fascinating about it. Just the idea of what masculinity was from the adult point of view and from the student point of view, as well as femininity. And, you know, just how women were expected at this time to to grow up and serve their man. And just how men were like, yeah, like there's a really, a couple, two interesting scenes. One was where um, a student is like talking about like not agreeing with, with something the way something's going and wanting kind of to being a man is showing his principles and the um this teacher's like no no being a man is is following authority and i thought that was a really interesting idea and there's also a scene in this where a, a letter is being written from a former student who's in vietnam and how it's being celebrated but really the the guys the the guy in the letter is talking about how he's like has no identity because he's a soldier right that that's kind of being celebrated anyway it's very very fascinating stuff that i could you know you think you could talk a lot about it and uh yeah definitely set me up to like want to watch more but you just need to allow yourself some time with a lot of wiseman's work but this one 75 minutes easy yeah, I, I'm I'm curious about the one set in a retail store. That's the one I want to see. Yeah, I think that's on there as well. Because I'm and I'm in that environment all the time, so it's like a like an Eaton's or the Bay. Okay, that'd be I'm curious to see something like that. Okay, well yeah. that's cool. I'm glad to know they're on Canopy because now I'll check them out too. Yeah, Cause yeah. Because it, it's funny because I had just been listening to Alex Winter talk about yeah, him. Yeah, that's really so, neat. So that's a, a good uh, kind of weird that they're. A month apart that i hear about him twice yeah um okay well from there we're gonna stay in the black and white 
territory. And we're going to talk about my first film I've seen produced by Val Luton. And uh, so Val Luton was a kind of, he was a producer in the 40s. And he made a lot of these more ambient, noirish, kind of like very moody horror pictures for RKO pictures. And uh, this is one of them. This is The Leopard Man from 1943, directed by Jacques Tournier. Now, Jacques Tournier directed Cat People and I Walked with a Zombie, which were also produced by Luton. But he also directed a noir movie called Out of the Past with Robert Mitchum that I've been curious about. And I'm not sure if you've talked about that one on the show or not. Because yeah. I know you you have talked about that yeah. one. Okay. I had a feeling you might have, but I can't. Sometimes they get boggled in my brain. Um, but this is my first Val Luton movie, like, produced by him. And it opens up with a nightclub performer, Kiki, played by Jean, Jean Brooks. And she's in her dressing room getting ready. And she gets interrupted by this cigarette girl who's kind of jealous of her. Like, you know, the cigarette girl, she's like, why can't I be performing? You're you're out there, you're entertaining, you're attractive, and I'm just selling cigarettes kind of thing. Mm. And, and, and she kind of says to the cigarette girl one day, because she knows she's jealous, Kiki looks at her and she says, you know, I bet someday you'll try on my coffin and I hope it fits you perfect. <laughs> you know, she kind of says that to her, like just kind of snarky. But at the same time, Kiki's kind of jealous of one of the other performers, this this uh, performer, Chloe Chloe, played by Margot, who's got the castanets and has the Latin flavor to her and is just like, you know, impressing everybody, too. So she's kind of she's kind of upset, too. But then her boyfriend, Jerry, played by Dennis O'Keefe, you know, says, OK, I got this plan to get the attention all on you. And he brings out this panth, this Black Panther on a leash and says, take this out with you. And I guarantee you. No one's going to pay attention to anything but you kind of deal. So she does. She she brings the Black Panther out as this kind of like, you know, this. Uh, this, you know, kind of this ploy to get her fans and, you know, and things like that. And only the Panther doesn't like being around the people and gets kind of scared and and, you know, takes off bolts. And on the way, claws a waiter in the hand on its on its way out the door. And everyone's like, oh, shit, there's a panther now that's running around loose. That's not good kind of deal. Um, and then from there, we kind of have like this introduction to this teenage girl who in the middle of the night, she's sent to go to the store. And, you know, as she's going to the store, she's wandering the streets and there's nobody out because it's late at night. And she kind of runs across this panther. And, you know, she kind of becomes this victim of this panther. And and Turnia does this really awesome job of using shadows and mood by, like, you know, to set things up. Like, she'll go under this underpass, this, this kind of underpass she has to walk under. And she's walking under there really slow. And you can see the panther's eyes glowing mm. off in the shadows. And, you know, and then when she's chased back to her house and she's hammering on the door to be let in. And they're trying to let her in. And it just cuts away to showing a little bit of blood trickling under the crack of the door. So it's very effective shit really early on with that kind of stuff. Uh, and then from there, it basically becomes this small New England town having to deal with this supposed attacks of this panther 
that's running around attacking people while Kiki and Jerry kind of stand off to the side being like, it's not our fault this happened. We have nothing to do with this kind of deal. And Jerry's also brought in like this scientist called Galbraith, played by James Bell, and this animal trainer played by Charlie, played by Abner Bitterman, to help him kind of figure out what they're going to do, like how they're going to stop this from happening. And it, and it just becomes this, you know, 60-odd 60, 60 minute kind of thriller about is it the Panther that's doing the killing? Is there more of a story to it? What's the mystery behind this until we reach the finale and everything's revealed. And, you know, it's a bit creaky because it is 1943 and it, it does. The mystery element of it is kind of a little bit, you know, eh, passable kind of thing. But what this has going for it is it has a lot of good ambience. Like Tournier knows how to make things moody and the black and white photography makes it kind of noirish and like kind of scary and kind of things like that. And yeah, the thrills aren't really the best thrills in the world, but this was actually pretty good. I think this is considered to be one of the, one of the lower tier of the, of the Val Luton movies, to be honest. Like I, everyone regards the cat people and I walked with a zombie and things like that much higher than this, but what's on display here. I was like, Oh, that kind of makes me want to see the big ones now. Like mm. now I want to see the cat people and things like that, because if this is what he can deliver in 60 minutes on a low budget and I'm engaged for most of the time, then I want to see more. I mean, yeah, it's kind of have a little bit of clunkiness to it, but what's on display. I'm like, yes, give me more of that. So it's a good kickoff point. I think, I think I'm going to like the other ones more. Like, I think I'm going to like cat people more. I think I probably will like I Walked With a Zombie more because I've seen none of these. Mm -hmm. And I have all of these on my PVR because Turner Classic Movies were like marathoning them one day and I recorded all seven. I recorded like seven or eight of them. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I got to start somewhere. I was like, which one's kind of the shortest because I'm tired. So I started with The Leopard Man. Um, so decent, but I'm looking forward to seeing what else Luton and especially Tournier because he did the other two I mentioned can deliver so pretty good kickoff though the leopard man cool all right well let's do another noir movie um this is one that Kino has put out fairly recently or maybe they maybe it's one of their re-releases they seem to be re-releasing a lot of stuff with slip covers now yeah. Um, but this is one from 1948 called Force of Evil, um, directed by Abraham Abraham Polonsky. Um who um okay, so he wrote a he wrote a movie called Body and Soul that starred John Garfield. And John Garfield is like one of these guys that I've known about my whole life, but never really seen much of his stuff and then i saw that he ran all the way and i was like oh my god this all right, so right awesome and uh so now i want to see all the john garfield movies so um polanski wrote body and soul which starred john garfield it was a boxing movie and then i guess garfield started his own production company and i think body and soul might have been part of that and then brought polanski on to direct force of evil okay uh, which Garfield stars in. So this one was interesting because it's um it's it's definitely noir-y, but it um it's it's more about well, 
the wars are all about crime, but they're they're not about it's not about like I don't know shifty. Well, yeah, it is about shifty people. Anyway, it's not about gangsters. Is what I kind of associate with noirs. This feels like almost okay. So let me just get to the plot. It's about gambling, and it's about um, kind of it's about the transition of what they call the numbers racket, which is basically gambling illegally and how it's going to get turned into like a state lottery. And basically these guys are trying to kind of get in one score, one last score before this illegal thing becomes legitimate, which I think is actually hilarious because it really kind of puts into perspective that lotteries are really just like, they're just as fucking dirty as illegal gambling. It's just legal all of a sudden, but you're still like taking money from people for like false hope and all this stuff. And I mean, I don't know. I've, I've been around just in the industry I'm in kind of been around lotteries and gambling and, it's awful like it's awful watching people because it's always the people that are pretty down on their luck unless they're james bond that are like gambling right when you go into a casino and you look at the slot machines it's either people like me that are like going there to have fun for an hour or it's like senior citizens that are like hoping to like make money with all the money they had you know gotten from their fucking senior citizen check and they're just pumping it into a machine it's the same thing with i find like scratch and wins and like the 649 i don't know what it's called in the states but like all that stuff i just powerball bingo it's all just yeah keto and all that awful it's just awful yeah go into these places it's 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 so sad and um so anyway this is about when it where it went legit and what they're doing is they're Garfield is playing this kind of crooked lawyer and he's trying to like cash in on this kind of lottery that's about to happen on Independence Day. And knowing that the number 776, 1776 is going to be bet. So they're kind of trying to like bet, basically bet for 776, knowing that everyone bets that number but it never comes up but they're kind of trying to fix it so that number is going to come up so mm. a bunch of these guys can get rich and then after that when things go legit they're all going to be kind of out of work so they're looking for like this one big score and his brother um uh leo um played by thomas gomez it runs an illegal gambling house so garfield's also trying to he's kind of a scumbag in this movie, but he's also trying to like help his brother in on this score. So his brother can like, once everything goes legit and his brother's gambling house closes, his brother will be kind of set. So he's kind of trying to be good to his brother, but his brother's not having it. His brother's like, fuck you. I'll do my own thing. You're corrupt. I don't want anything to do with you. So very interesting dynamic between these two. And I think just character-wise, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Um, Gomez, uh, who plays the brother, was, um, weirdly, he was in Arabian Nights, which I talked about last episode. Mm -hmm. Um, He was also in Key Largo with Bogart and Phantom Lady. So he's been around the block and some other noirs. 
Um, there's also a kind of love interest for Garfield, who's um, Leo's kind of, she's kind of like a secretary, played by Beatrice Pearson. Um, this is kind of a one and done uh, performance, and she is fantastic. I kind of wish she was in more stuff, but she, this is the only movie she was in. Um, I just thought it was really interesting. I mean, it may sound kind of boring, but Garfield is just so electric. Uh, this guy, I don't know. I remember seeing a picture of him in an old gangster book that my dad had, and I was pretty, pretty captivated. Then he just has this like scrappy, tough look about him. Mm. And now that I'm seeing this guy in action, I can see why he was such a big star. And he died young, of course, which adds to the allure. But he is just so fucking good in this and the other movie um, that I'm I'm looking forward to to seeing him in more stuff. Uh, this also has uh, another kind of great noir actress named Mary Windsor in this. Uh, she plays the wife of the the kind of bad guy in this movie. And um, Mary Windsor, I'm sure you'll remember, she's in Narrow Margin. She's like mm-hmm. the black-haired femme fatale. Yep. Um, she's also in uh, The Killing, the Kubrick movie, um, and also Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. So she's been, I've, I've seen her in all these, and she like really kind of stands out. Um, she's one of those actresses that I think a lot of people know her face, but not a lot of people know her name. But anyway, she's in this, and again, she's kind of steals the scenes uh that she's in. Um, this also uh was a big influencer on Martin Scorsese, of all people. Um, I th- apparently, well, he actually does talk about it. There's like an intro by Scorsese on this disc. Um, but this was uh apparently the first movie he ever saw. And oh really? Huge impression on him, huge impression on uh, Mean Streets, huge impression on Raging Bull, and a huge impression on Goodfellas. So if you're a Scorsese fan, this is uh, definitely one to one to seek out. And it's also a movie that is shot in New York with some incredible location photography. Um, and having been to New York a few years ago, um, there's some scenes on Wall Street, but it's abandoned which is pretty incredible. And uh, just Garfield walking along Wall Street and there's a, on on Wall Street in the main area, there's this this, this kind of like old building, kind of looks like a courthouse with these steps and it's in in this kind of square and it's, there's no one on the street. It's pretty crazy. And uh, it's a super memorable scene. And then across, kind of about a block away across the street, there's a church um just off wall street and i actually went there and i was walking around in the same graveyard that they shoot a scene of this movie mm. that was pretty incredible as well and then there's a scene under one of the bridges not the brooklyn bridge but another bridge in new york um kind of on a waterfront and it is also incredible so if you like great black and white photography from this era of new york city this also has you covered so yeah you can get this in a kino sale for 10 bucks if you're an oir fan or a john garfield fan or a mary windsor fan um yeah highly recommended it's uh pretty pretty captivating stuff and uh feels a little more intelligent than some of the noirs i've i've seen but really really good one so that's called force of evil yeah when you brought her name up i knew who you were talking about because I yeah. remember her from Narrow Margin. Yeah. So, um, but is this in any of the the box sets, or it's just an independent release? Yeah, separate. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll have to keep an eye open for it because I'm interested in that kind of stuff too. Like, yeah, it might be a little bit more 
in depth and stuff, but it sounds interesting to me. Oh, it's like, not. Yeah, it's not. It's not complicated or. Yeah, but it does sound interesting. I mean, because yeah. you're right, gambling's a fucking scourge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I agree with you fully. Like, I know what you're talking about. Like, I would be like, hey, let's go spend twenty bucks at the casino, and then you go in there and you just see the people you know have been camped out Ugh. for hours on end, and you're like, no, yeah. no, not good. Anyhow, um, time to move on to a movie that. I thought might be good, but then I was, you know, betrayed by. <laughs> it's a movie called Give Him Hell Malone from 2009. Oh, really? Yeah. So this one opens really good. It opens with a bloody shootout in a hotel, like a very bloody shootout in a hotel that goes on for about five minutes. And unfortunately, there's also a bunch of CG blood and CG gore effects in this in this opening shootout, which kind of was like, fuck, he just couldn't use squibs and practical in this situation. Like, squibs are easy. Just do it. And we've got Thomas Jane, who plays Malone, talking about bullet wounds as a narration track as he's in this gunfight with all these people. And I'm like, okay, sure. And instantly, this movie is setting itself out to be like a de- an old school detective movie, but set in modern times. So, you know, James Malone has a fedora and he dresses like an old school detective, like a Humphrey Bogart type, but it's set in modern day, you know, and, and, you know, and after the shootout, he goes to see his mom in the nursing home because his mom's the one who fixes all of his wounds. So she patches up all of his bullet holes and stuff. And like, don't the nurse says to him when he goes in there, don't scream this time. You disturbed everybody. So, you know, that's the relationship he has with his mom that she, you know, cleans him up after he's been in these gunfights well it turns out he's kind of this detective guy he was at the shootout because he was retrieving this briefcase that has some important information in it and people want this briefcase from him so the bad guys hired on this hulking kind of assassin type called boulder played by ving rames to try and track malone down and 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 boulder's first appearance is also pretty cool because it's just him walking into this hotel, this building, being being asked for ID and punching the guy in the face after he asked him for ID and saying to the first guy, what happens when you ask a big black guy for ID for ID? And the first guard's like, that's what happens, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. So I, I like the introduction of that character, too. And then it just becomes this convoluted plot from there where it's. Malone with the briefcase, you know, hooking up with this girl called Evelyn, played by Elsa Patake, and being chased by Boulder, who's teamed up with this pyromaniac guy called Matchstick, played by Doug Hutchison, and also being chased by various other assassins by the who have been hired by the bad guy who want this briefcase back, leading to the inevitable final showdown by the end of this movie. But the problem with Give Him Hell Malone is it wants so bad to be Sin City. Like, no. it, it wants so bad. It's got the stylization of Sin City. It's got the, the camera angle kind of stuff going on. It's got the saturated colors. It's got the, you know, all the kind of stuff Sin City had in it. It had. But the difference is, Sin City was directed by Robert Rodriguez, who is legitimately a creative, innovative kind of director. This was directed by Russell Mulcahy. Now, 
Russell Mulcahy to me is kind of like another Peter Hyam situation where I know these guys are skilled at making the movies, but the results are very mixed. So Mulcahy directed Highlander. He directed Razorback. He directed The Real McCoy with Kim Basinger. He directed a Resident Evil sequel, I think Extinction. So the guy knows how to make movies, but most of the time I don't really like the movies he makes, if that makes sense. Like, I appreciate his skill at making them, but I generally don't like the movies that much. Kind of like Peter Hyams has been for me, where I really like some of his movies, like Running Scared, but then a movie like Presidio comes along where I'm like, it's well-directed, but it's just not that good of a movie. That's what Give Him Hell Malone is for Mulcahy. It's well-directed, just not very good of a movie. And I think a lot of that does come down to that script that I talked about. Because I like the style. I liked the action. I liked some of the performances. Like, I liked Ving Rhames. I thought Jane was okay. But the script is so disjointed and uninterested uninteresting and just hog ties everything that's going on around it that I just got tired of trying to keep track of what was happening. You know, I'm just like, I don't know really what's supposed to be going on right now. I hate that. And I really don't care by this point. And I'm like, and that's too bad because there's parts of this where I'm like, this could be cool, but it's just, the script is, is convoluted. It's trying too hard to be Sin City and it's just not pulling it off. Like there's some, like the opening, the opening scene with the shootout. Apart from the CG stuff, was pretty cool. Um, there's a set piece in a carnival where we have this Asian, uh, female Asian assassin dressed like a schoolgirl, slicing an old pervert up, and then chasing uh, Malone and Evelyn into a mirrored funhouse. That was kind of cool, but it's just all this cool stuff is canceled out by the script. Mm-hmm. And that's why I didn't like this because the script is just such a mess. And it's such a mess. And and the female lead, Pataki, is also not very good, unfortunately. So this is staged like a hard-boiled detective flick, but just doesn't have enough hard-boiled to it, if that makes sense. So Give Him Hell Alone is a complete pass for me. And it's too bad because I like Thomas Jane. Yeah, and me I, too. And I really wanted to like this, but I just couldn't. So mm. there you go. Give him hell, Malone. Too bad. Darn it. Yeah. yeah, too bad. But you can watch it and see for yourself. Oh, I might have it somewhere, but yeah. I'll be giving you my Blu-ray. Don't worry. <laughs> Blu-ray, okay. <laughs> there you go. I definitely don't have a Blu-ray. <laughs> Okay, so let's go to a... I haven't done a redemption title in a little while, so let's do a redemption title. Um, So I decided... I don't know why I decided, but I decided to watch a movie called Crimson from 1976, directed by Juan Fortuné. Is this this the one that um, was put out by Wizard Video back in the day? Yes. And the box is like a... A head with a bandage around it being yeah, held by a head. That's oh, right. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Yeah, so it's uh, AKA the man with the severed head. Um, so there's two ver- there's two versions on the Redemption Blu-ray. Um, so the man with the severed head is actually the uncut European version with added sex scenes. So of course that's the one I watched. Of course. Um, 
<laughs> why why watch a fucking um um Paul Nashy movie and not watch the like, watch the cut version? That doesn't make any sense to me. Um so yeah, I decided to watch the uncut I, European. I wasn't saying it like it was a bad thing. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's just stupid. Like, why would you? Yeah, anyway. So yes, I watched the the Mad with the Severed Head version, but um, okay. So it opens with a heist, uh, which is always a good thing. Um, and we've got a group of criminals breaking into this jewelry store. Pretty cool opening sequence, and um, the criminals are, of course, Paul Nashi, um, a guy named Olivier Matho. Um, a guy named Claude Boisson and a guy named Victor Israel. And Victor Israel is probably the one that's had the longest career, well, other than Paul Nashi, of course, but he's been in everything from the good, the bad, and the ugly to Horror Express. So you probably know this guy. Um, the other two have been in some stuff as well. Um, and I'll get kind of get back to that later on. But they're doing a heist, and then the Victor Israel character is kind of eyeing this pearl necklace that's there and gets greedy. And just when they're about to break into the safe, he like grabs this pearl necklace off off a kind of shelf, and the alarms go off. So they have to book it out of there. And as they're escaping, there's like a shootout, and Paul Nashi's character ends up getting shot in the head. So they take off. They end up going to this, you know, kind of mob doctor that they know. And he's like, we gotta, I gotta bring you to this professor's house that I know. He's the only guy that can help you. So off they go to this like kind of estate kind of in the country. And um, they're introduced to this professor guy who's gonna be able to do this, uh, to be able to save Paul Nashi's life. And the professor's like, shit, this is not a good situation. Your buddy's been shot in the head. Um, but there is something we could do. But so we're gonna have to like find, we're going to have to do a brain transplant, basically, because you've been okay. shot in the head. So we're going to have to do this brain, brain transplant. And, um, you know, it turns out that your, like, lead rival, this guy named, um, oh, shit, the sadist, he's got the same kind of, whatever, blood type or brain type or whatever as you. I don't know how they know these things, but it's a fucking <laughs> Euro, Euro trash movie. We just go with it. Yeah. So they're like, you need to go get that guy's brain. So they're like, okay. So a couple of them go out and find the sadist. And and uh, anyway, they end up taking him out. And then they're like, oh, well, we need to get his head. So they like lay his head down on some railway tracks and wait for a train to come by. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's only, this is why I love these kind of movies. <laughs> we could just get a machete, but let's just put him on a train. No, they're like, I don't know how to be in this guy, so let's just lay him down on the tracks and we'll just sit around and wait for a train. <laughs> train comes, off his head comes. Um, so then they take the severed head to the do- to the professor, leave the rest of the body there. And then they're like, okay, we've got the head. So then the brain transplant happens. And then Paul Nash, he's like all wrapped up in the band-aid, as yeah. you know from the cover. And But he's not quite the same. no shit so now he's like turned into this like paul nashi i gotta say you know he's in i haven't seen a lot of his movies but in this one he's very for being one of the stars he's in bed most of the movie he's like lying in bed for most of the movie but then eventually he does kind of come to Mm. and then because of his (laughs) the uh side effects of his brain transplant he's now 
a raging like pervert and he's like any female that comes within range he's got to like attack them so a lot of this movie is paul nashi with his band-aid head attacking women and like tearing off other clothes um and and i think yeah he does he basically goes in after them and rapes them and then meanwhile like the the professor guy is like trying to get out of this. The cops are coming. The gangs like infighting amongst themselves. So it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a, like a Euro crime Frankenstein movie or something. And it's really quite bizarre. It's just like a, one of these like kitchen sink movies that I actually was pretty entertained by, even though I didn't quite know what was going on all the time. Um, but, you know, we have, like, a nude scene every, like, 10 minutes. We've got Paul Nashi being creepy. We've got, like, the gangsters doing gangster stuff, which I always love. So, yeah, it's like a Polizio Teshi fucking horror movie, which <laughs> is really a weird combination. Um, but I, I, it kind of worked. I mean, uh, I didn't, like, love it, um, but it's definitely better than some of the just franco stuff i've seen mm. uh definitely watchable and i i would definitely recommend checking it out if you're a fan of of uh like european genre movies and haven't particularly seen this one it's definitely a kind of an oddball one and all the actors i thought were pretty good now i'm not going to get into every actor and every connection here um you know i will say there's a there's an actress named ingrid who's um kind of Paul Nashie's Bane squeeze who um, doesn't understand why he's so different. And then she's kind of like becomes the target of like, there's cause there's also like an, a rival gang that's also out to get them because um, their leader, it was the sadist. So by beheading the sadist, they've also pissed off the rival gang. So they end up kidnapping her at one point and, um, and she, I thought she was actually pretty good. She um, was in John Roland's uh, Schoolgirl Hitchhikers, and she's also been in a bunch of X-rated movies. Her name's Gilda Arancio. Um, But yeah, a number of these actors in this have been in a variety of Just Franco movies. Um, but notably, I found the most connections with uh, Sadist of Notre, Notre Dame, which I don't didn't really like. House of Cruel Dolls and Devil's Kiss. So if you know any of those Spanish horror movies, there's a lot of people from those movies in this movie. But yeah, I thought it was pretty good for, for what it was. I had no idea what to expect. Well, I wasn't expecting this. Uh, I, I can tell you that much, but um, but it was a pretty, pretty wild ride. Uh, not as wild as some movies, but um, still pretty, uh, pretty entertaining and, a, and, a, and a definitely an original premise so that's uh that's crimson from 1976 aka the man with the severed head hey at least now i can uh i can put a, something to that wizard video box i remember from <laughs> way back in the day because the minute you said crimson i knew the video box but i had no idea what the movie was yeah well it's a lot of paul nashi running around with a bandaged head raping women so but it's not as graphic as i well it sounds worse than it is. Okay. okay. If that makes any sense. But it's right. it's a weird it's a weird it's a weird one. I think it's just worth watching for them deciding to decapitate someone with a train. It's pretty hilarious. Because I don't understand that logic, but hey, you're right. It's <laughs> it's your own trash, so it is what it is. All right. Well, Josh, it's time for me to end my year-long 
journey because wow. it's it's time to bring down the curtain on some JCVD loving with our final entry. Now, who wants to go home? And who wants to go with me? The year of that damage. And I, I told you last time that I was saving what I was hoping was the best for last. And I fucking did. Because... <laughs> Because my last one is a revisit, but I remember thinking this was rad back in the day, and I still think it's rad. It's Hard Target from 1993. Nice. Obviously, I'm going to cap it with that. Why would I not? John Woo's American debut. Jean-Claude Van Damme at the peak of his popularity, sporting a fucking curly mullet. What more do I need in life than Hard Target? Let's dive into hard target there's going to be a lot of discussion and it's going to be a lot of free form because there's so much cool stuff in this that i'm just going to have to go for it so this thing automatically opens high powered it's a guy it's 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 a most dangerous game type situation it's a guy running through the streets of running around the outskirts of new orleans being chased by a bunch of guys on like high powered motorbikes with crossbows and rifles and shit blowing up everywhere and you know just gunfire and close ups of crossbow arrows flying at him and he they're being led by these two bad guys who are like hissable bad guys this emil played by lance henriksen and pick played by arnold vosloo and they're just like fucking hunting this dude down because of course emil and pick have this like you know, the situation where they're, it's a human hunting thing where they let rich people pay them to help them hunt these miscreants, usually homeless people through New Orleans and, you know, give us half a billion dollars and you can, you know, kill someone for sport kind of deal. And it's a fucking awesome opening. Like shit's blowing up left, right and center. You know, they're in a, they're, you know, buildings are blowing up. That crossbow, they shoot a crossbow and Wu just shows the crossbow going right in front of the screen. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is this is hard target. This is what I remember about this movie. Um, from that wicked opening, we're introduced to Natasha, played by Yancey Butler, who has come to town looking for her army veteran dad, who we all know was the victim in the opening scene. So, you know, she's poking around town kind of you know i need to find my dad kind of thing she goes into this this restaurant and van damme's character chance happens to be sitting in the restaurant too and he kind of observes her like asking a question of the waitress and then going to get change for a payphone but taking out this wad of bills and he notices that these guys are kind of watching her so she goes to leave and when she goes to leave these guys accost her because they want her money and of course what does chance do he kicks their ass, all four of them, throws them through a fucking window, beats them up, beats them up, jumps up on a car, you know, does the Van Damme kind of shit we want Van Damme to do at this point. Just beats the living hell out of these people. So, you know, she's just like, whoa, who's this dude? And he's just like, don't go around New Orleans in this part of town flashing money like that. You're going to get yourself kind of into trouble. And this is Van Damme totally at the height of his popularity. So, you know, this is the coolest Van Damme you could possibly have. Um, so, you know, from there, she kind of like tracks him down when he's going to get a job at at the docks because he's kind of this drifter type. And she's like, hey, I'm going to hire you. Because, you you know, you obviously have shown me you know what you're doing. So I'm going to hire you to track down my dad. 
Of course, this is going to lead to what? Van Damme getting caught up with this human hunting ring. Um, and then just becoming eventually targeted by this human hunting ring. And just fucking ramping the fuck up in the last third of this movie. When it's John Claude versus the baddies with fucking shootouts. Over the top fucking motorbike. An over the top motorbike scene with a fucking hell of a capper. Which if you've seen this movie, you know what the fuck I'm talking about. Fucking Van Damme riding on top of the motorbike. Fucking shooting at the car as he's heading down the ramp towards it. Fucking awesome. A bunch of other awesome set pieces. Because this is a fucking John Woo movie. So of course um, we've got one where... Uh, this really cool set piece of Hendrickson and his gang hunting down one of Chance's homeless veteran friends through a graveyard with fucking gravestones exploding all over the place. And just there's so many goddamn explosions in this movie. I lost track. I'm like the pyrotechnics budget on this movie must be fucking insane. And considering that nowadays all those explosions would be done CG, it makes me respect hard target even more so because of everything going on. Um, You've got, like, fucking Van Damme punching a snake at one point in this movie, which is fucking awesome. I totally forgot Wilford Brimley shows up in this as a fucking moonshiner with an atrocious Cajun accent to boot as, like, Van Damme's dad. I'm like, what the fuck? Wilford Brimley's in this? Because I totally forgot he was in this. So you get to see Wilford Brimley riding through the fucking forest on a horse with a shotgun being chased by these fucking, by Henriksen and his gaggle. You've got a scene of Henriksen aggressively playing the piano, which is fucking something else to see. Um, you've got badass action in the finale with fucking New Orleans parade floats exploding everywhere. Gas cans being tossed at people's heads and being shot by guns. You've got pigeons and doves flying everywhere because this is a John Woo movie. Fucking Hard Target is amazing. <laughs> it's still fucking rad. It's still Wow. Something else like the action in this is so good, dude. Yeah, like so good. And I mean, we should have expected that knowing what Wu did with Chow Yun Fat and everything back in back in Hong Kong. We should have known. But this is fucking amazing. So much fun. And fucking Hendrickson and Vosloo are the most perfect villains you could ever hope for. I loved both of them. And I'm pretty sure this must have got Vosloo the the cast as dark man in the direct to uh dvd sequels because sam raimi's one of the fucking producers on this movie which i forgot about as well oh and ted, yeah and ted raimi even has a cameo in this movie oh really which i, which I also forgot about and uh this is just i can't praise hard target anymore it's impossible this is this is van damme's best movie whoa better than bloodsport I think it's better than Bloodsport. Oh. It's a hard, it's a hard call because Bloodsport's what kicked me down this down this year of Van Damage path to begin with, and I was just like, you know what, I've got to end with Hard Target. I just have to. And holy shit, it still delivers. I have not seen this since VHS. So good, dude. So good. I mean, yeah, there was a sequel thirteen years later with Scott Atkins. I would like to pretend it doesn't exist now. I just sold my, <laughs> I just sold it. Finally. Did you? Yeah. I sold, I sold my Blu-ray a while ago too, yeah. actually. <laughs> like I didn't hate the Atkins sequel. Like I thought it was okay. Oh no. <laughs> but after watching, but after watching this, there's yeah. no comparison. Like 
not only is like Van Damme awesome, Wu is awesome, the soundtrack by Graham Revel is awesome because it's got that fucking blue, that Rye Cooter type fucking New Orleans jam to it. But the friggin' villains are also fucking amazing. So if I haven't made it perfectly clear, if you've never seen Hard Target, you're doing yourself a disservice. And I'm super fucking happy that I got to end this experiment with Hard Target. 100% recommended. 100 fucking percent recommended. Nice. Did you watch the Kino Blu-ray? Uh, no, I watched. I have a... um. I have a Universal Pictures Van Damme set Blu-ray. That's five movies. That's where I watched it. It's got Hard Target, Lionheart, Street Fighter, Sudden Death, and they're all movies I covered on the show, actually. And uh, I can't remember what the last one is. Hmm. But I, I, out of the, it's an awesome set. I bought it for thirty bucks, and the only movie I didn't like in it was Street Fighter. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I, the universal Blu-ray only has a trailer and nothing else. So I might have to upgrade because I know that Kino put out a 4k of it too. I think they did. I actually have an uncut version of hard target. No shit. Yeah. Like a, like, a, a like a, like a, yeah, yeah. What's different. I don't, I don't remember. It's just way more violence. Right. Cause wow. Yeah, they had cut it quite quite a bit for for the American release, and uh, I have a, a VHS dub of. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but I haven't. I have only. I haven't seen like since the theater. I haven't seen a good print of this movie. Yeah, like like I, I wasn't worried because I knew John Woo was directing it. Have you never seen it? I'd seen it, like, but okay. I wasn't worried because I was like, I wasn't worried it wasn't going to hold up. Yeah. Because I'm like, I love this back in the day, and it's John Woo. I mean, John Woo generally hasn't made a bad movie, although I heard his new one's not supposed to be very good. He did do Mission Impossible too, which was terrible. I guess, but I mean, he also did Face Off, dude. Yeah. And Face Off's pretty amazing. Yeah. But his new one's not supposed to be very good, like Silent Night. Oh, that's too bad. And I was kind of wanted to go see that. And then I saw that it wasn't supposed to be very good. I was like, you know what? I'll just watch Hard Target instead. (laughs) And I don't regret one minute of Hard Target. So there you go, everybody. That's my year of Van Damage. Officially, officially in the books. I hope you enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed it a hell of a lot more than I was expecting to. And uh, if you go on my letterboxd, I do have a list where I've ranked them in the order of how I enjoyed them. So you can check that out. You can check that out after this episode because I'll have updated it with Hard Target at the number one spot once this drops. So there you wow. go. Crazy. I uh, Finally, I can now watch JCVD. I've been waiting. To like see the, you... um, the, the, uh, the one that's called JCVD? JCVD, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've been, it's been I've gotten on hold and I'm like, if he talks about it, then I can watch it because I didn't want to like steal your thunder from the... But uh, yeah, now I can watch it. Finally. Yeah, now you can watch it. <laughs> I, I I had thought about it, but I was just like, I don't have an easily accessible copy of it, so okay. I kind of went with what I had on hand. Yeah, mostly. So for sure. Yeah, I'm curious to hear about that because it's supposed to be pretty good. It is. Yeah, I I, I don't know. 
it's it's meta right like i don't know if i'm not a big meta guy but uh and i'm curious about it so i've got it on like a three pack action three pack and i remember i started it like right before you started this right i watched the first movie in the three pack and then i'm like oh fuck i can't keep going now because <laughs> so so if you don't i'll just do quickly look at my letterbox if you want to see my ranking but if you want me to do best worst and the movie that you should watch that you that you probably don't know about it would be best is hard target worst is is uh Black Eagle, probably. No, Ooh. worst. Sorry, no. Worst is Universal Soldier: The Return. Right. And the one I want everybody to watch is The Bouncer. Nice. So there you go. Cool. Wow, that's quite the achievement, man. I did it. <laughs> you did. And I've and I've already got locked and loaded what I'm doing next year. So stay tuned, everybody. Nice, nice. <sighs> All right. Um. Okay, so I watched this movie because I uh, <laughs> I saw a random <laughs> I saw a random tweet by Uwe Boll. Okay, complaining about John Wick Four. <laughs> he liked okay. John Wick Four, um, but he was sort of complaining about action movies in today's day and age, and he recommended a movie on this tweet. And I was like, oh, well, we've had Uva Bowl on the show. I kind of trust his opinion. I'm going to check out Athena, which is oh, yeah. the, the movie he recommended. I put this on my uh, on my for later list once I saw him tweet about it, too. But I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, he's like, I'm tired of all the bullshit action movies. I'm tired of seeing John Wick get up after he like gets knocked down so many times. If you want to see a real action movie, go watch Athena on Netflix. <laughs> like, okay. and, and also, if you if there's anyone who's listening to this episode who hasn't listened to our Uwe Ball episode <laughs> number two hundred, go check it out. It was it was quite a, a a fun conversation. Yeah. All right. So Athena is a French movie directed by Romain Gavre, uh, Gavra, sorry, uh, who did a movie called The World Is Yours with uh, Vincent. Um, oh my God, fucking Monica Bellucci and Vincent Cassell. Thank you. Um, so <laughs> I knew okay. I knew you'd get there. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. So this movie. Okay, I just need to start by saying this movie. I think might have the most insane opening shot ever I've ever seen. Ever. So it is a 10 minute winner. And um, now I think, I think there was some trickery there, but it certainly looked like one shot of basically uh, there's a guy coming out and he talks about how there, the premise is that this guy's brother was killed by cops in in a kind of a police brutality thing and um that he's the, basically there's the, there's kind of starting to be a rebellion like an uprising over this against the police and this this kind of soldier guy comes out and it's his brother that was killed and he's kind of comes out and he's like my brother was killed. I want the people that were responsible, the cops responsible to be captured. Please be calm, you know, while we're figuring this out. Because if you've been following, you know, politics lately and in, in, in France, you know that there's been all these 
kind of uprisings and um, youth revolts that have been happening. So he's trying to calm people down um, in this kind of like Rodney King-esque um, situation where this young kid's been been killed by police. Okay, so he comes out. It's him walking down a hall, comes to him at the podium. He's talking about, talking to reporters about this thing. Camera like pans over across the crowd to this this guy and a couple of guys and then pans down they're lighting a molotov cocktail throws the molotov cocktail um and they're at a police station throws the molotov cocktail ship blows up the guys that threw the cocktail it, it this now basically incites a riot these guys then go into the police station which is now being looted this is all one shot into the police station, goes through the police station, down into the bowels of the police station. They get into a car. They fucking drive away. The camera comes out of the car, like way out of the car, like way, way out of the car. Watching the car driving down the highway. There's fucking motorcycles doing wheelies. Camera comes back into the car. It's back inside the back of the car. They get to a destination. They all come out of the car. Follows a character outside. It's it's fucking bananas, dude. I've never seen anything like this. And I've seen 19... What is it? 1920... I can't remember what it was called. The movie that uh, Sam Mendes did. 1917? 1970. Which was, again, like that was another movie with this kind of gimmick of one shot. So... Uh, that I love that movie. That was like I think I might have made that my favorite movie that year. But I think is, you were. It was pretty close, or it was. I, I loved it. I just love this. I love that whole notion. I just think it's so incredible to do this kind of thing. And uh, but this movie rivals that. Like I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Like as they kept driving, as they're driving on the highway, there's shit going on in the background. There's people on overpasses cheering. And then they get to another destination. And there's like more activity. It was bananas. I couldn't believe it. So I don't think I've ever seen anything quite that impressive for this kind of this kind of thing. So I was in right. I, I was just in shock at how crazy this was. And then the rest of the movie is very similar. It's 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 kind of it's a real time type of movie. And it just goes from like these very, 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 very long takes of action as this riot and rebellion is going on in France, in the outskirts of France. Uh, Athena is like a housing project that these guys have kind of taken over. And it's there's like, you know, it'll be a bunch of stuff going on there. Then it will cut to like the cops trying to like figure out how to get in. And then it will show them trying to like rush in again in these like crazy one-shot things that are going on and it is just technically it is just incredible and there's it's it's i was like because when i started when i hit play i'm like why is there like a separate thing i can hit on netflix here called the making of athena <laughs> okay. now, now i get it <laughs> and i actually don't know if i want to watch it because i kind of like the magic of what i watched being in my brain i don't know if i want to know how they did it but um there is just so you know there is a 30 minute or 45 mm. minute making of special that you can watch on netflix anyway so it's all about this so we've got our lead guy that this the kind of soldier guy from the beginning he's the main guy that whose brother was killed 
the leader of the rebellion is his brother, it's his other brother, Kareem. So we now have this kind of dynamic between these two brothers. We've got the, the good guy and the bad guy. And Kareem is who we follow for quite a bit of this as well. And then we actually get a third brother that gets involved um, when, um, as they're kind of, as shit's going on, there's a scene where they run into, well, one of them runs into another brother who's like a criminal and he's also trying he's trying to basically steal drugs or something from the area that's under siege and try to escape but he can't because the youth have kind of surrounded him so he's trying to get his drug buddies to come and get him out so there's all that action going on and all this tension going on between these brothers and um yeah it's a fucking harsh movie like it gets into some pretty this is not a happy movie by any stretch um but and it's super intense throughout and i i totally it's so it's about police brutality it's about youth um you know kind of rebellion um and it's just about this basically this crazy riot that's going on for the running time and it is fantastic so um you know, there's a lot of talk about the ending of this and, and it being a bit of a jip. I kind of agree, um, but I'm not going to say why. Uh, but getting there, it's amazing. This is a pretty amazing movie. And it just saddens me that these movies just sort of just show up on Netflix. <laughs> yeah. No one's talking about them. And it takes a tweet by Uwe Boll. And only because I was listening, I actually didn't even understand it when he said it. I had to actually message and be like, what's that movie? <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm going to check it out. And it it's fantastic. And I don't get why uh, why this isn't like number one. <laughs> it's like so crazy. But it's, it's subtitled in French, blah, blah, blah. But if you're looking for a crazy action movie, check out Athena. I uh, you won't be uh, you won't be disappointed. And if you like those kind of crazy long takes um, that are very technical, where you're like, how how the fuck did they rehearse that and pull that off? Uh, this has you covered. It's 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 bonkers. So yeah, Athena, twenty twenty two. You're speaking, my, you're speaking my language with the entire thing. Yeah, it's great. And it's, and it's only about 90 minutes. <laughs> yes, it's like even better. I know I hate that. That's what I hate about the streaming era, though, is like movies like this come out and I would come, never have known to watch like a collect a collective shrug. It's kind of like that. It's kind of like that movie, The Platform, that I oh, that, yeah. we, that we saw like a couple years ago, which I actually quite really liked, but again. If I wouldn't have stumbled across it, I wouldn't have known. Yeah. You know? It, and there's so many I've got on there, like, bookmarked. And I'm like, yeah, maybe. But it might be crap, right? And you, you, But no one ever talks about them. So I don't yeah. know what's good or what's bad. And... Well, you don't know what's good or bad on Netflix. And then when you look at the top ten, it's all garbage. Mm -hmm. So you're just kind of like, ah, I don't know anymore. I mean, there's movies on there from directors who I legitimately like that have been on there for years. And I just forgot about them because they came out with no fanfare. But I like my my like Facebook and Twitter and stuff is filled with, you know, people like like minded people recommending things. Right. Like that's how I find out about stuff. Yeah. I've the only time I've ever seen anyone mention this movie is Uwe Boll. OK. And it was buried in another tweet. Right. Like 
I, anyway, it, it's mind boggling, but okay, this is I, this is fantastic. So I I do have it on my watch list, so we'll have yeah. to uh, we'll have to uh, move that up. I think. Yeah. Um, so my last one is a good one, and it's a good one for all the right reasons, and it's one I know you've. I'm pretty sure you've talked about this on the show a while back, but I had never seen it before, and we were hankering for some good old animal attack action. Me and me and me and the girlfriend were hankering for it. So we watched Day of the Animals from 1977, directed by William Girdler. And and let me tell you, man, goddamn was this an entertaining movie. Yeah. Wow. So so opens up with a text scroll about damage to the ozone layer and what could happen if we ignore it. And I'm just like, whoa, this movie's really ahead of its time if it's late 70s and they're talking about the ozone layer and everything. And then we were thinking about it later. And we're like, remember how in the 80s, the ozone layer was like a big deal where they're like, oh, all your aerosol hairspray and everything's destroying the ozone layer, blah, 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 blah. And then we're like, but nobody fucking talks about the ozone layer anymore. It's true. I'm like, I'm like, did it fix itself or like, are they just calling the ozone layer global warming now? Like, I'm not quite sure, but nobody mentions the ozone layer anymore. But I was just surprised to see a movie in the late 70s already talking about it and how damaging it could be bad for us. Um, and, and, you know, after this this text scroll, we get to the setup of the movie, which has Christopher George. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Christopher George playing Steve. And he's this guy who is about to take a group of people for a hike up in the mountains. And, you know, it's got your typical group. It's your typical, like, different group of people you know you've got leslie nielsen on hand as some ad executive you've got the couple who are having marital problems you've got the native dude who you know is good at knowing the lay of the land and everything you've got like the 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 mom who looks like a grandma and her 12 year old son she literally looks like she's way too old to have the 12 year old son but that's another story um, and then you've got like the sassy female reporter played by Linda Day George, who's <laughs> along for the ride. And and so they're off in the hiking in the up in the mountains and everything. And then we're we're led into these multiple shots of animals just watching them from the distance. Like it'll literally see them hiking and it'll cut to like there's a wolf watching them from a distance. Now there's a bear watching them from the difference. And now like all these birds, here's a vulture watching them. And the thing is. All these animals have been brought together by this fucking hawk. And there's this hawk that legitimately is the fucking ringleader who gives the orders to all the animals in this. <laughs> and I'm watching the movie. I'm like, that hawk is a motherfucking pimp. Like, it just runs around telling everybody else what to do. And I'm like, that hawk is rad. It's just <laughs> telling everyone to it. It's telling all the other animals, these hikers need to fucking go. Kind of deal. Yeah. So, you know, and then amongst all them hiking and being watched by the animals, we've got a lot of the typical dramatics you get when you get a group of different people together. You know, you've got Nielsen's character being a total asshole and a little bit racist to the native guy. A you've little got, bit. <laughs> you know, well, a lot. <laughs> you know, you've got people arguing and then everything comes to a head one night where they're they're tenting it up. They're they're around their campfire and one of the girls attacked by wolves in the middle of the night. And it's a pretty cool scene where the wolves swarm her and everything. 
and they're like, oh my God, what's going on? Why are these, why are these wolves attacking us? And they're like, oh, uh, it just happens. We're out in nature kind of thing. So the, the girl who's attacked her and her husband, the ones who are having marital problems, are like, fuck this. She's hurt. We got to get her back to the mainland. Which leads to a fucking rad bird attack that ends with the girl <laughs> being fucking pushed off a cliff. <laughs> fucking awesome. Awesome. I'm like, this is what I signed up for right now. Like, awesome scene. And then it's just, you know, from there, it's just like, it's just, you know, the animals kind of like stalking our hikers who are arguing the entire time. And I'm totally there for it. And then just like a subplot of the sheriff in town trying to figure out what's going on and walking into his kitchen in the middle of the night and being attacked by rats, which fucking jumped through the air onto his face, which was also awesome. Uh, and, you know, and and they and then eventually leading to all the dramatics leading to them splitting up and Leslie Nielsen being like, I'll lead this fucking crew. And then he goes fucking crazy. He's like walking <laughs> through the fucking woods shirtless. <laughs> fucking hitting everything down the trees down and he's like he's grabbing the one little kid he's calling him a cockroach all the time he's like come here you little fucking cockroach kind of thing and he's like he's looking at the young girl and he's like he's like i know what i want and right now i want that and he's getting all rapey with all the girls and then it's fucking raining and it's the middle of a thunderstorm what does fucking leslie nielsen's asshole <laughs> character do he fucking tussles with a bear and it's fucking epic that it is epic <laughs> that entire sequence of him being an asshole right up to when the bear happens is so epic dude i'm just like i've never seen leslie nielsen like this before and it's and it's amazing it's so amazing like in the middle of the rainstorm before the bear shows up he fucking is yelling at the sky there is no god and i'm like this is amazing right now this is like the best and so, you know, that happens. Uh, we find out that the reason these animals are attacking is because, you know, because of the ozone layer being depleted and because we're 5,000 feet above elevation, it's making them go crazy. We've got fucking German shepherds attacking people. We've got fucking rapids. We've got rafting. we got all sorts of shit. This pretty much has everything you want from a 70s animal attack movie. This is like William Girdler being like, hey, remember when I made Grizzly the year before? You guys like that movie, right? Well, I'm going to fucking ramp everything up to a hundred times that. And I'm bringing a whole fucking entourage with me. And that's what he does. Day of the Animals is fucking rad, dude. This was so good. Like, this is exactly what I want from an animal attack movie. hundred percent. Like, don't give me the bullshit of all these ones that like fucking the beasts are on the streets and shit like that. This is what I want. I want animals being led by a fucking hawk, attacking the shit out of people. I want Leslie Nielsen being a rapey piece of shit. And I want just like fucking everything. I just want boom, animals attacking, rattlesnakes, cobras, wolves, bears, everything. Any animal you can think of attacks people in this movie. <laughs> it's great. Wow. And you really love this. It is was this your first time fun. seeing this? It is. It is. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I, I really thought this was, I almost. I was almost gave this four stars on Letterboxd. I was, I was just like, oh, I don't know if you I should. can do it. It sounds like you I'm should like, be giving it four so stars. It's so much right? fun. It's so much fun. Um, most notably, a couple things I learned. Andrew Stevens is here oh, yeah. in a super early role. And I was like, holy shit, it's Andrew Stevens. That's good. Uh, Ruth Rowan plays the grandma slash mom of the 12-year-old. 
the reason she's rad, she's super whiny in this and super like Gentile, like Jewish whiny. She played the mom in a little movie called The Baby, which I also loved recently. Mm. She's the mom in that. Um, and the score is by Lalo Schifrin, which blows my fucking mind because Lalo Schifrin did the music for the original Mission Impossible TV show, amongst other things. And I'm like, what is he doing making a William Girdler movie? Day of the Animals. I don't get it. And what the biggest bummer is that that William Girdler didn't get to make more movies, dude. Like, yeah, you know, like he made one more movie after this, which is the Manitou, which came out like, but unfortunately before it was released, he, he died in a helicopter accident Yeah, because he was out scouting locations for his next movie. It got caught in some power lines and he, and it crashed and he died. He was only 30. I know. And he made fucking nine movies by the time he was 30 including fucking day of the animals and the and the black exploitation exorcist glory that is abby <laughs> and grizzly yeah this guy could have could have been something even more so if he if he if the unfortunate accident happened but uh this one's out on on blu-ray from severin Highly recommend you buy that bad boy in the next Severin sale. It's a, it's a, not only is it an amazingly fun movie to watch and delivers the goods, it's loaded with special features, like yeah. loaded with special features. So Day of the Animals, pretty, pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. I mean, I don't know how long ago you talked about it, but I it's I'm... great. I mean, I do think I I think Grizzly edges us out a little bit for me. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why, but I just. I don't know. I like Grizzly a little bit more. I really liked Michael and Sarah in this movie. As oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Native American guy. And the trivia I thought you'd catch, but you didn't, is the woman who gets knocked off the cliff by the birds. Her name is Susan Backlady. And she's the woman from the beginning of Jaws that goes. Yes, skating. yes. Yeah. I, that was in the special features. Yeah. So she's that not in a lot of, she hasn't been in tons of stuff. She's a stunt woman. But um, yeah, I just, I, I thought that was fascinating that, because, you know, we just know that girl from the beginning of Jaws, but it's weird seeing her in another movie. And getting killed by her. an animal again. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, but no, the, it's, it's a fun movie for sure. My favorite special feature actually is, is, um, it's an older, like it's a more archival one. I think it was on the Shriek Show DVD where it's like the animal trainer basically talking about how many animals they actually had to use in this movie and how they had to train them. And I was like, this is fucking insane. You would not see a movie like this get made these days. It would all be CG animals. It's totally and, true. Yeah. But yeah, 100% recommend Day of the Animals. If you have not seen it like I haven't, don't sleep on this. It's so much fun. So much fun. Yeah. And the, the other thing about her, Susan Backlady, is when I interviewed um, Jerry, the the animal trainer who did the uh, animals for um, Unmasking the Idol, the baboon, boon, yeah. uh, which, of course, was the baboon from Shakma. Um, Susan Backlady is who gave him the baboon. Oh, really? Yeah, which I thought was really crazy. Too. She's responsible for Shakma? <laughs> she is. Yeah. Fucking Shakma scares the shit out of me to this day. That's yeah. some good animal training. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, 
Gravity of the Animals, don't delay. And if if you don't want to buy the Blu-ray, it's on Shutter. It's on Tubi. Watch it. Yeah. Josh's Beatrice Adventures. All right. Well, this one was a bit of a letdown, and it's actually it's another one of these weird coincidences where I like I watched this. Okay, I'll, I'll just tell you what it is. I watched this movie called My New Gun from 1992. I know this movie. And it stars Diane Lane and James LeGros. Yeah. And I watched this and then I, I don't, it's just one of those things where I like a couple, I think the next thing I watched after this was Drugstore Cowboy, but I forgot James LeGros was in that. Oh, and it was so nice because I'm like, oh yeah. Cause like, I, uh, I really like him. And, but in this movie, this is one of the rare movies where he's not that great. Mm. He's good. He's good. He's good. But he's not great. And he's great in so much stuff. And it was, was just it? such a so weird that I would, you know, kind of subconsciously grab drugs for a cowboy. Was James LeGrow in um was he the one who was in Gun Crazy with Drew Barrymore too? Yeah. yeah. Okay, because he's rad in that too. He's so good. He's always yeah, good. Okay. But this movie. <laughs> okay, so this is 1992. So kind of peak LeGrow period. Same year as um, Gun Crazy, I think. Yeah, directed by Stacey Cochran, who um, probably the only other thing of note she's done is a movie called Boys with Winona Ryder that I don't think you'd like at all. Fucking terrible. Yeah. Terrible. I felt the same about this movie. I mean, it wasn't terrible, but um, it's just this is one of these movies where I've been really trying to think about how to describe this. But if you've ever had like... If you've ever had like a friend who's kind of like maybe not even a friend, just somebody in your circle, an acquaintance that's like a fucking pothead that like never really s- says anything really worth mentioning, and it's just kind of stupid all the time, but not <laughs> not in a lovable like Bill and Ted kind of way, but just in a kind of annoying way, kind of like the like clerk you'll find on Commercial Drive in Vancouver when you're going to buy like a fucking can of beans and the guy's like a fucking moron like that's kind of <laughs> that that's the equivalent of this movie kind, like, kind of like the guy who you don't know why he's still in your friend group yeah you're just like well he kind of looks cool but god he's stupid and like <laughs> that's this movie that's what i felt about this movie i'm like you know this movie is kind of cool in a way but it's just shitty it's just like not it's just not it's just dumb so yeah, I, I just kept thinking of like people on weed, like people high on weed that are that come across as dumb. That's what this movie felt. It's like the equivalent of that. Anyway, I don't know why I'm fixated on that, but that's what I think. Diane Lane, Diane Lane's a babe, and and she always has been. Mm-hmm. Um, but hard to believe she was in Fabulous Stains after seeing this. Okay, so she's this woman in a kind of a mar- in this marriage with this guy. And, uh, you know, they're not really that into each other anymore. The guy's played by Stephen Collins. You know, and of course, you know, I really used to love Stephen Collins. He was on Tales of the Gold Monkey, which I loved. And then he was on Seventh Heaven as the preacher. And then it came out that he was like, you know, having sex with a little, well, not having sex with little girls, but like exposing himself to 10-year-olds and shit. So um, it's kind of hard to look at this guy now and be like, huh. You know, it's always you just always get that creepy vibe. Anyway, he she's with him and he decides that he's going to get a gun for their house to protect them. 
James Legro is like a kind of a neighbor who's kind of, looks like he's kind of got a thing for Diane Lane. And he comes over one day and wants to borrow the gun. And then like basically Stephen Collins ends up having to ends up in the hospital. And Diane Lane kind of starts this relationships with James Legro. And he's got this kind of weird mom played by Tess Harper. And it's just kind of meanders his way through through and Legro is just being kind of weird and kind of almost creepy through the movie. And it's he's like macking on Diane Lane. And they they do end up kind of hooking up. And it's just it's just called kind of stupid because you don't really like anyone in this. And then Philip Seymour Hoffman shows up. And I know everyone loves Philip Seymour Hoffman, but I don't. Sorry. And um, he's just being like weird Philip Seymour Hoffman in a weird scene. And I mean, I guess that's kind of neat if you are a fan of his. But I don't know. It just kind of. It's just one of these movies that just kind of stumbles along and you don't really know why and you don't really know what it's about and you don't really know what it's trying to say. And that's what I that's where I think where I'm coming with the drug references because I just didn't understand. Yeah. And I just didn't like it. And I didn't really like anyone's performance in this. And the only thing I liked was the end credits, which was a song, uh, uh, Mission of Burma song called That's When I Reach for My Revolver, right, covered right. by Sid Straw. That was the best part of the movie. I'm like, okay, that's a cool cover at the end. But overall, this was a letdown. So um, not much more to say about it. I was questioning whether I should even talk about it, but I'm trying to be somewhat persistent, like when I just grab a VHS and watch it. So that's why I'm talking about it. But this is a, this was a letdown in a kind of a, the, that early 90s era yeah. of a lot of cool indie movies, especially with a James LeGro movie. And I was I thought this would be really fun, but it wasn't. It just sounds like one of those like early 90s indie movies that's one of those ones that's like completely aimless. And the people who made it think they're more witty than they actually are. Yeah, and I like, like aimless movies like SFW and Floundering. Like, I like that. Yeah. But this didn't, it just wasn't, it had no cool edge, which some right. of us had, you know? Hmm. Yeah, I remember seeing this back in the day on VHS too, and I remember absolutely nothing about it. Yeah. I'm pretty sure the only reason I watched it was Diane Lane, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I remember nothing. I mean, yeah. if you if you want to watch a, a early 90s movie with... James Legro and the and the word gun in the title. Watch Gun Crazy. Agreed. Gun Crazy is much better, probably. Yeah. So, anyway, what's that called again? My new gun. All right. Josh's Beaches Adventures. Okay, I think we pretty much know what my pick of the episode is. Yeah. It's hard target. Oh, so and mine. Oh shit. Um. Oh. Uh, drugstore cowboy drugstore cowboy okay and let's recap our titles you can go first okay so i had expect no mercy maniac cop 3 badge of silence force of evil i wonder who's killing her now alice doesn't live here anymore my new gun drugstore cowboy crimson aka the man with the severed head athena and high school all right and i had the leopard man hank and mike Hard target. With six, you get egg roll, bad words, violent night, strays, death rumble, and give him hell Malone and day of the animals. 
Uh, if you would like to talk to us about any of these movies or recommend anything or just post a silly post about that's movie related on our we do have a Facebook discussion group. It's facebook.com slash group slash GBW podcast. We have Twitter X and Instagram at GBW podcast. Uh, rate and review wherever you listen to the show. We're on all those platforms that are out there. Spotify, Amazon, Stitcher, Apple, all of those were on there. And But most importantly, if you like the show and you know someone else who would like the show, pass the word on because... The more the merrier, as I always say. And most importantly, as this is our last episode of 2023, we want to wish all of our listeners a very happy holidays and all the best for 2024 when we begin our journey into more exploitation B-movie types that you probably haven't heard of and we complain about them or say they're rad. So anything else to add there, Josh? Nope. Thanks for listening and all the best for next year. Yes. Yes, thank you for listening, as always, and good night, everybody.